Welcome everyone to the discussion. Tonight we will be discussing truth, love, and faith. And I put these three together because they really, from a philosophical standpoint, um, and the foundation I plan on laying before we get into discussion about it, they build on each other. They're intrinsically connected. And so we'll start with truth, move into love, move into faith, open up the discussion with that as a foundation. If at any point you have questions, you have a challenge, you have uh, a, a, a need for clarity on anything, um, if I use terminology or something that just doesn't land for you, doesn't make sense, feel free to give your input at any time. Okay, so first, let's start with truth. And there are, and, and right now, the reason why I feel like these are so important, these particular three, is because right now, what we're experiencing, the way I, this is how I'm uh, interpreting what's happening in the world right now, is we're in the middle of World War III. And it's a war on reality. And so people are having this experience, and this is all peoples of all walks of life, of all political affiliations all over the world are having this experience of, I don't know what's real. And so in order to get at what's real, we must be able to make a distinction of truth. Okay. And, and there is behind a lot of these philosophies that are being pushed that intentionally tear apart truth and make it as if there is no absolute truth. That's kind of the basis of some of these philosophies. It's a, it's a form of relativism that there is no absolute truth. And therefore there is only subjective reality. And therefore my feelings are more important than your facts. Okay. So this is kind of where we're heading. And because of this, this battle is being waged on all fronts from a, standpoint of information, you're really, you're getting bombarded from all sides on with information that does not necessarily comport to any kind of absolute truth or facts or anything else. So with truth, and this is, again, I'm laying a phil philosophical foundation. So this is kind of my philosophy around truth, truth or, and Truth, the way I see it, is distinct from fact. And truth is, is always there. It's always around you. It's always present. It's always accessible. However, getting at the truth is much more difficult. What do I mean by that? We, as human beings, we objectify the world around us, meaning we break it into bits and we use symbols to think about to communicate about the world around us so what do i mean by that what what symbols am i re referring to well language is a symbol letters are symbols words are symbols we use symbols to articulate and to think about the world around us and so i don't believe for me, there is an absolute truth. However, 
when you think, when you're interpreting using symbols, which are, you know, words, and this is just how we think, this is how we communicate. We, in fact, there isn't necessarily a way that we can effectively communicate or think without making symbols out of the world. And symbols, by their nature, are not the thing we're thinking about, are not the thing we're talking about. There, there's a separation there. And, and so symbols are like uh, are illusory. They're, they're mythos. They're, they're images. They're a representation of what we're trying to get at. So if truth is the thing we're trying to get, our use of symbols to get it will always diminish the truth. Okay? So in that sense, that's the, that distinguishes truth from facts. But, and, and, and that distinction is well-deserved because facts aren't necessarily truths. For instance, if we look at, let's say, the law of gravity or, the, or Newton's equation for gravity, we can take and put together an experiment whereby his equation is proven in that like, yep, you know, when we take into consideration the mass and all these other variables, this equation is factual, okay? However, then you have Einstein's equations for gravity, which account for a lot more variables and even proposes some aspects of space and time that Newton never did. In fact, Einstein's equation for gravity makes Newton's equation look like the scribblings of a lunatic, okay? So they're, it's, it's two completely different worlds, and when you use Einstein's, you, again, all these variables pan out and they, and they, in the result in proving the equation, we have facts. Now, does that make Einstein's equation for gravity truth? No, just as Newton's equations for gravity, even though we were able to prove them and therefore establish that this is factual, that in the relationship between the variables, it worked out with the data, with the experiment, all seem to line up. And same with Einstein's equation. So facts aren't necessarily truth. Now, truth is definitely experiential, especially when you can experience the world without interpreting. Now, have any of you ever had an experience of the world without interpreting your experience of the world? Meaning, can you hear sounds taste, taste, touch and feel things, see things without making up and giving them meaning. So oftentimes this is what we strive for in meditation, right? So when we go into a state of meditation, the, you know, we're seeking a state where we are free of our interpretation, or at least we rise above, we, we lift ourselves into a state of consciousness where if interpretation is happening, we're watching it happen as opposed to engaging with the interpretation. And so that's us getting closer to truth. And that's in, in, in our sciences, in our mathematics, we're always working towards and moving towards truth, not necessarily ever getting there. We may establish many facts. We may be able to establish many repeatable experiments and 
theories that prove out and, and allow us to do some really miraculous, amazing things. We can get into space. We can you know, launch satellites around the solar system. We can really do a lot because we're always with our scientific methods, with our problem solving, our capacity for reason and logic, we can move towards the truth. And this is evident in the fact that these facts, these theories, these things, they work for us and they allow us to make predictions about what will happen in the world, showing us that we're on the path of truth. And this is very distinct from that relativistic ideal out there that in these, you know, present theories and philosophies that suggest that there is no absolute truth, which is funny because that's, that's a paradox in of itself. They claim there's no absolute truth except their truth of it, there being no absolute truth. So that's, that's paradoxical. But I feel that when you, when you take that standpoint, that relativism, where there is no merit to any ideas, that you fail to recognize that there is an absolute truth and that we can be moving towards an absolute truth, which to me is evident with you know, some of the examples we've just given, like the equations for gravity. Like We may not be there. That may not be the truth, but we're, we, it's getting us closer to the truth, to understanding the relationships of, let's say, um, celestial bodies, right? So there is a way of moving towards the truth, which means that what we, what we symbolize, you know, when we use our language, when we use our thoughts to try to get towards the truth, we are able to get closer to the truth. And the closer we get to the truth, the more merit those ideas, those concepts, that methodology that we followed within a science, those mathematical equations, whatever it may be, they have merit based on the results that we get from it knowing. So from that, we can tell we're getting close. We're, we're approaching truth. And I look at truth kind of like uh, how we have irrational numbers in mathematics, like phi. Phi is this mathematical concept that we discovered, I'll say, because it is in nature. It is fundamental in every aspect of physiology, biology. Um, we see it in plant life. We see it in everything. And yet for us, it was a mathematical equation that got us there. And phi is this irrational number. You're all, you can calculate it out, calculate it out, calculate it out, and you're always getting close to phi, but you never quite get there. Same with pi. Right, which pi is a very simple concept of taking the circumference of a circle, wrapping it around the diameter, but you never get to pi. You can calculate pi out for millions of past millions of digits past the decimal point, but you never get to what pi is, and you never get to what phi is. This is kind of how I see truth. We can constantly be moving towards truth, but because the only thing we have to interpret truth is the symbols, the symbols of our language and the symbols of our thoughts that we use for th the symbols that we use in thinking. Now, we have, I, I said earlier that truth is experiential in that we can experience that absolute truth. And in fact, almost all philosophies, religions, 
have some kind of a principle within that philosophy that points to an experience of this absolute truth, at least in my interpretations of these philosophies. So like, for instance, in Zen, in the Japanese, they have what's called Satori. And in Chinese, it would be called Wu. In the Hindu traditions, they have what they call Samadhi. And in Judeo-Christian uh, philosophy, they have uh, revelation, right? And it's in these experiences of Satori, Wu, Samadhi, revelation, that you experience that absolute truth. And, and some people even will experience it on uh, through other types of ecstatic experiences, whether it be through religious ritual or it be through uh, some kind of uh, psychedelic um, experience where you have this profound experience, this revelation, this satori, this samadhi, this woo that comes upon you. And have any of you ever had an experience like that and then tried to articulate it, <laughs> tried to explain it to someone? And that's one of the things you'll find with people who've had these types of experiences is often they will say, I don't have the words to explain it, right? And so there, that's what I would say is that you can experience absolute truth, but as soon as we try to use the symbols to explain what truth is, it falls apart. It, it's, it's a representation, just like a picture of a dog isn't the dog. Our symbols for the experience aren't the experience. Our symbols of truth aren't truth. They're symbols, and some of those symbols have more merit and get us closer to the truth than others. So like when I made the first uh, uh, comparison of Newton's gravity equation versus Einstein's gravity equation, Einstein's gravity equation got us closer to the truth. It's not the truth, but it got us closer. And so we would, if we were putting those ideas together in, a, in, let's say, in a hierarchy, which one has more merit, it's those ones that we feel get us closer to the truth. So, and there is a feeling aspect to the knowing of truth as opposed to an intellectual aspect to the knowing of truth. Because the intellectual aspect of knowing is symbolic. So it, it's always going to separate. But there is... There is an emotional aspect to knowing that isn't representative or represented in symbols. And that is the experience of truth. Okay. And I, and I would say that many people, maybe even all people have had some kind of an experience like that, where they had a revelation. They had that moment of Satori where they felt and knew the truth at an emotional level. And then in trying to put it into symbols that they could think about or talk about, it breaks apart. And, you were, and you're aware of it when you're trying to do it. You're like, ah, <laughs> I don't have the words. The words aren't coming out right. They're not expressing my experience properly. Um, so this is the nature of truth in that it's there. It's always there. It's all around us. It's accessible. But as soon as we try to grasp it in the form of symbols, in thought or in words, it eludes us. It's always just one step away from those symbols because the symbols 
just like the photograph, are only a representation. They can't quite get us to the truth. And so that's what I want to draw as a clear distinction between truth and facts. And facts and like the scientific method and philosophies and even religions are tools that we've used in our development as human beings to get us closer to the truth. And, 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 and I believe that about all philosophies. That's what philosophies, and, I, and when I say philosophies, I include all religions as philosophies as well. Like if you look at the Bible uh, from the Judeo-Christian uh, traditions, it's telling you stories. It's got parables. It's got analogy. It's got metaphor. And it's trying to get you closer to the truth. Because there is no way to put the truth in words. You may be able to put facts in words, but you notice there's this, there's a very poetic kind of uh, wording in, in religious philosophies because it's, it's kind of like the, the finger pointing at the moon tells you more than the finger or the moon, right? So that's why you find parable and analogy and things like that in religion because it's they're trying to get at these deeper truths which can't be directly talked about because the words the symbols you use obfuscate it so in and you find this again in all religious traditions what they're trying to get at in the religious traditions and the philosophy of that religion is it's humankind's uh, uh, attempt to get closer and closer and closer to the truth and throughout the ages, from, again, the dawn of humanity, even those philosophies that never turned into religions, the, they're doing the same thing. They're attempting to get mankind closer and closer and closer to the truth. Even our scientific method, which is really born out of philosophy, is attempting to get us closer and closer and closer to the truth. So in contrast, and, you know, in this world where there's a war on reality, to contrast the philosophies that stand in this vaporous space of relativism where they believe there is no truth, where they believe that reality is purely subjective, not to say, and I'm not saying there's not a subjective aspect to reality. This is, that's actually why the truth is is we can't grasp the truth with symbols, with words, with thoughts. It's, it's always right outside those symbols. So there is a subjective aspect, but it does not mean that there's not an absolute truth, that there isn't a, even a quote-unquote true reality. But yes, there is a subjective aspect to reality, but it doesn't mean that that's all there is. May I posit something yeah my name is saulo uh i've listened intermittently uh and uh, i'm blessed to, to have been invited to, to join the conversation but one thing that uh i'd like to posit with regard to truth is that i compare it with a kind of a frequency if you were to look at sound or light in the, the visible light spectrum or even light what we can't see within the light spectrum there is a inherently, I think that when you talk about truth, you have to talk about one thing with regard to truth, and that is acceptance, right? Because you could be facing the truth or you could be facing facts, either one. You could probably 
interchange one or the other. But if you don't accept what is true or if you don't accept what is false, then I don't think that you can actually come any closer to the truth. And I think that when we talk about truth in a philosophical manner, we often look outside of ourselves to try to find truth out there when actually truth is inherently every man and every woman and nowadays every other if you want to talk about every other gender or anything that's created somehow has the ability molecularly spiritually somehow in our dna somehow in the dna of all living breathing sentient creatures there is an, an ability to uh, recognize truth by its resonant frequency and yeah when- that's what i meant by that feeling of truth remember i said there was a thinking right a, a, a knowing that is intellectual that doesn't get us any closer to the truth because it's symbolic and then i said there was a feeling an emotional aspect to knowing where we can know truth but it's not in the symbols of our thoughts it's not in the symbols of our language where we get at truth i i, I agree with that and I find no issue with that whatsoever. I was just wanting to uh, to kind of uh, maybe deposit uh, just a, a bit of a, of, a, of, a, of a take when it comes to truth, because one other way of knowing truth, just like one other, one other way of knowing anything, is by seeking its opposite. When you talk about truth, then you have to consider its, its opposite or, or the other side of the coin, if you will, which is deception. Or, or one or the one who engages in or, or a system which engages in the suppression of the truth. And uh, I yeah. think that's, that's an area I, where I, I think that uh, when, I, when I have uh, an, an inability to be able to, to, to discern between truth and falsehood, I pursue each to its end and I get a better idea of whether to go left or right. Right. And I would say that that's definitely a more... I'll call it a worldly uh, relationship with truth. Um, I believe that our relationship with truth is much more on the metaphysical side of our life, meaning it's, it's a, it's more a spiritual thing than a material thing. Okay. So, and what do I mean by that? I mean that the, that, that knowing that emotional knowing of truth, right, that you uh, equated to some sort of resonance is more on a spiritual side that deception happens only to your perceptions, right? And so that's, remember, our perceptions, which we use symbols, can, can never really get at the truth. So what's really, what is all that's being obfuscated by, let's say, the deceiver is your perceptions, not the truth. The truth is the truth. It is absolute. And the only obfuscation happens with your perceptions. So for instance, like you brought up the gender thing. Okay. So because the, because right now there's a philosophy that's being pushed in our world of relativism and pure subjectivity of reality, they they've come up with this idea, which to me in my uh, hierarchy of ideas is extremely low on the totem pole and has absolutely zero merit at all, that gender is a spectrum and is purely socially a, a social construct. 
<laughs> now, from a biological standpoint, there are male and female, okay? And with the rare exception of intersex, which is actually still, there is still a biological sex there based on your chromosomal makeup. You're either XX or you're XY. You can't be both, okay? So there's a, so again, these are both, let's say these are both ideas to get us closer to the truth. Well, the idea of biological gender gets us closer to the truth than this idea that it's a spectrum and purely a social construct because we can actually do a multitude of experiments to prove <laughs> that there is male and that there is female and that there is a difference and there is no other gender at least within the human species so in those experiments those theories all that bio biological sciences and the biological scientific methods that we would utilize to get closer to the truth around gender gives that that idea much more merit so it gets us closer to the truth but you can't ever really grasp truth with language or thought we can get closer and that's how when we place our ideas about truth in a hierarchy because that's when deception right so if somebody's trying to deceive right they're they're trying to skew or manipulate your perceptions, this is when we start to gauge the merit of any idea because that's all they're, that's all they're doing to, to skew your perception. They're just placing ideas out there to obfuscate. They're placing ideas out there to manipulate. And when you test these ideas, you can gauge their merit and you can discover whether or not this particular idea has more or less merit than another idea. And then again, we're always striving, we're moving towards the truth. And I say, I would say that that's evident in how we progressed as, as a society, you know, and your, uh, your idea of the deceiver, the deception that occurs is also evident in that, there's a, at the same time we progressed, let's say, technologically speaking, um, we've also regressed in the sense of our morals and ethics and principles and things like that. We've seen a regression of. So we can see that there is definitely a war here, that there is a battle. Let me, let me ask you a question, Brandon. Um, do, you, do you think that it's important for a person to be actually living and moving and existing in truth in order for them to recognize it? It depends on what you mean by living. Do you mean, do they, do, must they be, but yeah, what do you mean by living in truth? Okay, so, so for example, if you, if you have certain values and you have certain uh, beliefs and paradigms that you've built your whole life on and, and you have through experience at, at some point in your life or for the majority of your life have tried to live according to that, uh, that's pr probably outside of yourself based on a higher principle, right? And then all of us, you go through, you know, everybody in life goes through valleys, ups and downs and different experiences take us in different directions and, and life is a journey. And, and there's been times in my life where I've not been living according to my own truth, right? right. And, I'm, and I know somehow I know in my life that I'm not being, I'm not living uprightly. I'm not living according to my own integrity. I'm not, 
I'm not right. being, that, that, I'm not being this true. Is, right. This is your question has more to do with the next part, which I'm, which we'll be discussing love. Okay. So again, I'm laying out a, a, a philosophical foundation here. And that question definitely belongs in that part of the conversation when we get into love, what love is, how love functions, what's at, what is its primal foundational elements. That is definitely part of that conversation because truth is, is again, it's absolute. So there is no my truth. There is no your truth. You might have assessments, you know, uh, well-grounded assessments, ungrounded assessments. You may have assertions, you may have facts, but you don't have a truth that is separate from the truth. There is, there is absolute truth in the distinction that I'm making of truth. Now, again, this isn't necessarily the way everyone uses this word. Okay. A lot of people conflate truth with facts. Some people conflate truth with their fucking opinions. Okay. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about truth, not your opinions, not your judgments, not your assessments, not your assertions, not facts. There is in, for the foundation of this conversation, I am asserting that there is absolute truth that is absolute, regardless of your perspective, regardless of your interpretations, there is absolute truth. Okay. So that's, I'm going to leave that as one of the premises for this conversation. And then when we move into the love, I think you'll see where your question fits in more. So let me wrap up on truth here. So in, in and jump in on that. Um, I did have yeah, a couple ahead. questions about truth. Um, you talked about it as um, like the, the picture of the dog is not the dog. And so right. I'm wondering if the, if there can, there, let's see, how can I put this? If there is an experience of truth um, on both sides of say a, a communication. So I have an experience of truth and I'm trying to convey it to you. Is there a way that we can share the same experience of truth or is truth in that way still a level of subjectivity to it. You know, you know, you see what I'm trying to grab out there. Okay. So there, you know, again, there is an absolute truth. Okay. So there, there's nothing subjective right. about it. Um, now what you're alluding to, and I'm not going to say that if, if I try to communicate my revelation, let's say I have a revelation or I have a moment of Satori and I try to communicate it to you. Typically, that does not convey the experience. That's just typically. I'm not saying it's impossible. It might. Like I, I might have this revelation and I might say something stupid like, oh my God, the dog chases its own tail. And in that moment, you're like, holy fuck. And you have the same revelation. But again, not necessarily. However, you'll notice in some traditions, in some religions, some philosophies, like one of my favorites is Zen and how the Zen master fucks with his... Uh, apprentices right his his uh initiates and they play these games with them that at some point oftentimes not always not guaranteed will elicit a, an experience of satori it will elicit that revelation which can probably be also done through a skilled uh 
uh, let's say a priest of let's or a minister of the Judeo-Christian traditions, they may be able to say something to a parishioner that will have that same kind of an effect where all of a sudden they have that aha moment, right? And 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 actually, even at the outside of philosophy, even in the sciences, we have this 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 equivalent, right? Where scientists, which doesn't happen a lot these days because there's a locked-in worldview with science and science has become an institution. But if you look at many of the early scientists who weren't locked into a worldview necessarily and were deep thinkers, they would have these aha moments, right? These are this That's the same thing as a revelation. It's the same thing as Satori where a truth dawned on them and they attempted to articulate it, whether it be through a mathematical equation, whether it be through some uh, theory on maybe the physical nature of the universe. But that aha moment was they experienced, they, they were at that moment experienced the absolute truth. And in an attempt to grasp that truth, they created symbols. Right. Whether, like I said, whether it be a mathematical equation, whether it be right. uh, a philosophical concept or anything else. So there's not necessarily a because what you're talking about is using symbols to directly convey it. Like if mm. I just chose the right words, <laughs> would it convey it? <laughs> not necessarily. So specifically, uh, well, now I've got two questions, but originally I was basically trying to get at, is there a shared experience of truth? Can we both experience truth at the same time, or does that exist within those aha moments, those Satori moments? I, I, again, I, I wouldn't say it's impossible. You know what I mean? But it wouldn't be through the conveyance necessarily. You know? right. Again, I, I mean, I've had moments like that where somebody said something to them. It wasn't that significant. They were just talking. But the combination of the words and the way they used them, I had that moment. I had that revelation. I had that Satori and holy. I mean, literally, I've had a phrase completely transform me for days on end. You know, so yeah. I, but, but again, to them, it wasn't very significant. They were just talking, you know? So it, it, it just was like, for me, it was like a key and it unlocked something and it allowed me access to that truth, you know? And again, so, then what I, what did I try to do, I tried to convey this, to articulate it, to create thoughts and concepts around it. But it's, it was never, it never got me the truth. It gave me a symbolic representation. It gave me a picture of the dog. It gave me the finger pointing at the moon, but it didn't give me the truth. You know, I experienced truth, but I can't grasp it. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So the, the experience of truth, I do have a question about that, where you're talking can about these aha moments, these tutorials. Genji? Sure, go ahead. Be before you move on, when you're asking about shared experiences, I tend to believe that you can through my own experiences of experimenting with friends, with uh, psychedelics, and the dog talks, and we both look at each other like, did you just hear that? I just <laughs> so I do think that there can be shared 
truth. Is that kind of what you are leaning towards, Brandon? Is that what you're conveying here? Well, I, yeah. What I'm saying is it's not impossible because it it's just that's typically not how people have the experience. Usually when people have a revelation, usually when people have a satori, when they have that moment of samadhi, like it is an individual. Most of the time, again, not to say it can't happen. It could happen to an entire group of people simultaneously. In fact, you might look at the, uh, you remember the three kids in Spain back in 1917, the Fatima prophecies or whatever? Like these three kids, they had this experience that was profound and possibly it was a shared moment of absolute truth, you know? And then of course there was, it had to be translated, had to be articulated. So it, it, whatever came out of it for them in the form of words, in the form of thoughts, wasn't quite the truth, but it was their, their best attempt to getting towards the truth of that experience. And it seems that by their accounts, they all three had a very similar experience. So it's not to say that multiple, more, more than one individual can't have that kind of a moment simultaneously. Um, but again, mm-hmm. it's, there's an absolute truth to it. So like the three kids may have three different interpretations. They may have had the same experience, but the way they articulate it, the way they, the way they chopped it up into symbols, right? The words they use to explain it, the thoughts they use to conceive it, those are unique because it's based on their interpretations, their perceptions, even their linguistic skills. You know, they're, they're limited by all those things. Makes a lot of sense. And thanks for chiming in there, Lynette. That does clear some things up. Yeah, um, absolutely. So the, the question that that leads me to is, can you have this experience of the Satori aha of truth without the aha Satori type of enlightenment moments? Or does it only exist in that like epiphany space? It, it, th- that epiphany space is the truth. If you, ha- if you right. intellectualize truth, it's not truth because all you're doing is arranging symbols, right? Right, but like so, we were talking about a newborn kid, they're blissed out. It's like they're just pure sensation. Are they in a constant state of Satori? Yeah, possibly. I mean, if I could remember back that far, I'd let you, <laughs> you know. Should, you I should ask, ask, ask one, Gingy, see what it says. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let, let you guys know. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? Like, does it happen in those, oh my God, and then, you know, you come with the interpretation and things afterwards, but is there, is there a way to be in that state? Yeah. Well, consistently, I don't know, but um, in that state, if it's consistent, can be similar to a flow state. I'm teaching my daughter to drive and she's read all the books. She's heavily intellectualized it and she gets what the traffic signs mean, what the pedals do. I'm teaching her to work on cars. She understands mechanically and intellectually in her mind how it works, but it's not until she gets behind the wheel that driving goes from an abstraction or an, intele- an intellectualization to an actual Gnostic experience. She's, right. she, is, she is driving. She's in that space. And her face and the way she feels when she's behind the wheel is completely different when she, when she's, from when she's reading... Um, I don't know, the owner's manual of the car or the traffic rule book or taking the test, right? She's experienced the drivingness itself and right. it becomes I, I second would, nature, an extension of her body. Yeah, but it's, I would equate that to mm-hmm. ontological knowledge, not truth. 
um, because we embody knowledge as well. And so that's what I would, I would just call that, that the distinction I would create for that experience. Cause we all have that. All of you who are drivers, we all have that ontological knowledge of driving where we could drive from work to home and absolutely not even think about the process the entire way. Like, oh shit, right. how the fuck do you get home? It's sec- <laughs> you yeah, just, it's second. You happen second to stop nature. at all the red lights. Yeah, you happen to stop right. at all the red lights. You you turned your used your turn signal. You didn't crash, but it's an embodiment. It's that's an ontological knowledge. That's how right. I. It's right. not necessarily truth. You know, I'm I'm more I'm more talking about her her experience as a new driver. I mean, not, not the, not the commute to work where you can just listen to a podcast and zone out and not kill yourself, but more the, um, more her, her, the dawning of, of the, of the experience on her. Oh, this yes. is she's what it is. Beginning. Yeah. She's beginning that embodiment process. Right. Right. You've done it for decades. So for you, it's, you don't ever have to think about it because you've embodied it for 20 years uh, well, I'm, you know, not to make any assumptions about your age, but <laughs> <laughs> but I've embodied it since horses. <laughs> but you've you so it's it, for you it's it's a it's a well embodied ontological experience. Whereas for her, it's new, so she hasn't quite embodied it yet. But it's still ontological in that it's becoming a part of her being. Right. And it will slowly and slowly, the more she does it, the more she practices, the more she embodies it, just like Michael Jordan. Right. He became a master of kinetic movement with within with within the context of a basketball court, basketballs and uh, basketball hoops. And that was it was embodied within him. He never had to think about all the crazy shit he did on the court. If he did, he would have never gotten anything done. He would have never scored a basket. It was embodied. It was within him. It was ontological. So it just, it was just an expression that just came out naturally because it was embodied. So again, not to, I don't want to get too far off track with, with truth here. I want to touch on one more aspect because I feel this is relevant. What about downloads? What do you mean downloads? Downloads. So like we talked about having like the, the, a moment of receiving an entire concept and then we work it out through our brains to try to explain it, to try to conceptualize it. Is that, that the same what, thing as the aha moment? Yeah, yeah, what you're calling a quote-unquote download. Now, he, here's the thing, because I hear people use that word, but if it's information coming to you in the form of symbols, no, that's not truth. Mm, yeah. you, you understand what I'm saying? So, Because that's how a lot of people uh, explain their quote-unquote downloads as right. words symbols coming to them, which again, I'm not saying that that it's not necessarily inspirational. I'm not saying it's not insightful, but it's not truth in the, fa- in the fact that it's coming to you in the form of symbols. Right. It represents right. the truth as a symbol. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So okay. what about the sense I'm, of like yeah. our personal contract or, you know, basically what Salo was saying is this, you know, this concept of my truth and living in alignment. Okay. Hold, with my truth. Yeah. Hold on. There is no my truth. There is absolute truth, and wait till we get to the conversation of love. If you want to get into conversation of values and principles and things like that. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. All righty, moving on. So I want I wanted to touch on one more aspect of truth because it's very important when you consider what we're seeing, what we're witnessing in the realms of science as an institution, uh, the abandonment of the scientific method, <laughs> and the reason for this is that there is 
baked into our current institution of science a worldview. And I'll, that worldview can be best explained as, uh, uh, what would I call it, mechanistic materialism, okay, where that there's a worldview that the universe and human beings are merely machines, okay, that what you call consciousness, what you call experience, all that is just chemicals moving around in your brain, making things light up, that, that, that everything in the universe boils down to a mechanistic nature. It's just a bunch of machines. Plants are machines. Planets are machines. People are machines, okay? And I think that there's ample evidence to completely disprove that in the fact that when you... Now, for one, there is no science that backs up their model, now, their, their worldview. Now, they can say that all this science works with their worldview, but what, what they're not saying is they reject a lot of science that doesn't fit in the worldview. Like, there are scientists who've done a lot of work on the metaphysical who just get rejected out of hand because it doesn't fit with the worldview behind the institution of science. Like, there are people who have done... Uh, research. And I mean, they've followed the scientific method and they've got ample evidence, which in the current worldview of science is an anomaly, meaning not that there's something wrong with their science, the, the people who are doing these metaphysical experiments, but there's something wrong with the worldview of the mechanistic, materialistic world, right? It, it, it doesn't necessarily operate that way. That isn't necessarily the nature of the universe. So because science has become an institution and there is not necessarily the, the, the respect for the method of science that there used to be, because it used to be that we just focus in on the method, follow it, follow it where it takes us and let go of any preconceptions, presuppositions, any kind of worldview that may skew the science. See, as science has become an institution, it's institutionalized around that worldview of a mechanistic material world. And so, like I said, there's been many uh, scientists who have done, taken the scientific method and shown, you know, uh, te telepathy, right? They've proven telepathy. They've proven uh, people's uh, capacity to see without their eyes, people's capacity to see in remote locations and, and this is well beyond the science and the methods that they follow go well beyond happenstance. These aren't just uh, anomalies and, they, and they're not just random. Like they conclusively show through the scientific method that there's something here. But because it flies in the face of the worldview of the institution of science, it's rejected out of hand. Okay, and we'll get it. We'll have another conversation another day about the institution of science versus the scientific method, because that's what, what when everyone's talking about science right now, they're talking about in the institution. <laughs> they're not talking about scientific method. They're not talking about actually trying to get us closer to the truth. They're using science as an institution. And they've, and because it's not only institutionalized around a worldview that we're all just machines, but it's also institutionalized around this, uh, around the, uh, we'll call it the status quo of, of the physical laws and, and, of, and of nature itself, in that there is a, 
there, there are barriers that could be broken that are not being broken because of this limiting worldview that is holding science back at this point. And, and we're not progressing like we could be progressing because of the attachment to the worldview that really no longer fits. And like I said, there's ample evidence to show that in that there, with these other experiments, with these people who are actually following the scientific method that prove things outside of the mechanistic worldview, they're just rejected out of hand because they don't fit with the mechanistic worldview. Even though the mechanistic material worldview is not scientific, it's just a worldview. It's a presumption. It hasn't been proven, and even if it was, when you understand science, a proof is just getting you closer to the truth, right? Just like Newton's gravitational equation, and then follow it up with Einstein's gravitational equation. Again, they both work, but one has more merit. One gets us closer to the truth. So to, to be, for science to be, completely attached to a worldview that has become clearly dysfunctional in that all these anomalies are arising through experimentation and the scientific method being employed in ways that fall outside the purview of that worldview. Okay. So moving any, any more questions on truth before we move into love? I don't have a question. I just have something that's come up, which is, uh, you know, we used to say when we were coaching startups, like, they would have all these fancy words around their brand. And then like those words wouldn't make sense. Once you've experienced what they did, you made sense out of their technology. Then those words made sense. So I'm, I'm what's coming up for me relative to what you're saying is these formulas, Newton's Newton's law, for example, makes sense. It's almost, it's inherently limited as you're speaking of. Right. So I don't know if it's getting me closer, but it makes more sense after the fact. Like no, as it's, a, it's absolutely getting you closer because you're getting closer to understanding the universe around you. Like, remember, before the theories of gravity, you know, the uh, mankind's image of how the universe worked was, you know, childlike. You know, it, it wasn't what it is now. And then Einstein took it another, to another level. You know, at first, people probably laughed at Einstein's theories because they're like, <laughs> curving in space. You know, like to them, it's like, how could space curve? It's space. It doesn't curve. And then, you know, decades later, like, oh, shit, he was right. Look, <laughs> like we've run these experiments. We, you know, they, whether you're talking about the redshift or whatever. So Einstein's gravitational theory got us closer to the truth, to understanding the cosmos, to understanding the world. To un- so it does get us closer to the truth. It can never quite grasp the truth, but it gets us closer. And the same with religion religion gets us closer to the truth. Like, and, and, and very, and especially when it comes to the moralistic and, and ethical and value questions of existing as human beings, existing as societies, uh, a, a simple example, right? We, there, there is a, a, an idea within religion of us being stewards, right? Responsible for the earth, being responsible for animal life, being responsible for plant life, right? And that's embodied in the story of Noah, right? Where he takes on responsibility. He becomes a steward for the future of mankind, for the future of animal life. He's, so it's, it's getting us closer to a truth about our role and responsibility 
on the earth. Okay, that's what that's what ancient man was trying to do with religion is get us closer to the truth. Get us closer to the truth. That makes a lot of sense. Actually, that example's pretty apropos. So right. I hear what you're saying. That makes sense. Okay. Um, alrighty. So now moving into love. Um so this one I've been contemplating a lot. Um not only for years, but this week I specifically focused in on these subjects because I knew we were going to be doing this discussion. I felt that this, this discussion was extremely significant, uh, especially for what we're facing right now in the world um, and important. And so love and my philosophy on love has shifted throughout the years, but here's where I'm at with it now. I see love as this unnameable, whether you want to call it virtue or value. And I'll, I'll describe it like we, I could describe it as perhaps like if we look at the world around us, there is something impelling us that's impelling the universe itself, moving it as if it's moving towards something, right? As if there's, as if there's an underlying purpose as if there's an underlying goal, right? And so this, this value, like if I look at it from like, let's say a, a, a scientist, you know, I'm a, as an observer, right? I'm observing the universe around me and I recognize that if we, if we assume and presume that our, our representation of the, let's say the development of this planet and this galaxy and the solar system and all that, let's say that's somewhat accurate. What we see is the universe itself moving to ever more complex systems, right? So at the beginning of the earth, there were these inorganic materials. And then plant life, plant life, what a, an amazing thing. There's this, there's this living thing that can take inorganic material and sunlight and convert it into this living, breathing thing. And then you have animals that consume these plants. We can't, they can't consume the inorganic matter. You don't see, uh, you know, uh, well, maybe goats. But you don't, typically you don't see animals walking around eating rocks and shit like that or eating dirt um, because they're, they're, they're eating this other form of life. And, and we see that eventually you get these human beings that not only ha uh, that, that are much more complex than all these other lives before it. But in the complexity of human, you also have this, this self-awareness, this capacity to objectify the universe. So in some sense, I could say there's this underlying impelling force that is making the world and the universe itself more and more complex. And, and if I look at like where, where my understanding of where the most where the complexity has led us so far is this consciousness, this awareness that perhaps that's the goal is for, uh, and, and I'm going to actually relate this to all philosophies and religions here in a moment, because this is at the foundation of all philosophy and religion in that it is as if the, whether you want to call it God or this impelling force is is, is, is seeking to know itself. 
and I'm and I can only base that based on where the most complexity has been achieved in in the universe now because for me that's that must be what the impelling force what causes that complexity because by our by our understanding of the physical laws of the universe that shouldn't necessarily happen <laughs> shit shouldn't just be getting more and more complex like it doesn't really make sense with our current sciences and physical laws but that's what we see that's what we experience we're recognizing this and so i I, I equate love to that, that that which is moving God, love, humanity towards a knowing of itself. And, 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 I, and, so I, and I, I don't want to name it as a particular virtue. Like for me, we'll just name it love. And the way we know it and the way it plays out around us is when there is love, absolute love, unconditional love, there is no fear. And if there's an, if this love is what impels, is what moves, is what drives, then we see it play out in when a being, most of the time human, I'm not going to say it's exclusively human, but, but we hit, we definitely experience it significantly within the human race. When we reach out for others, to others, in a way that doesn't necessarily benefit ourselves, but benefits others. That is an expression of this impelling force that drives us, that moves us. So we can name this with various principles that we've, that we've come up with, that we've conceptualized, that we've idealized over our development. Things like compassion, empathy, uh, um, uh, sympathy, even forgiveness, gratitude, grace, mercy, right? These are all, these are things that don't necessarily work for our interests. And in fact, sometimes work against our own personal interests, but it, there's this impelling force that moves humanity towards that. And perhaps going back to the the philosophical religious concept of God knowing itself, that that is the way to know self is knowing that other is part of self, right? And so love of other, appreciation of other, gratitude towards other, forgiveness towards other is always in, in a reflection of gratitude, appreciation, forgiveness, compassion towards self, okay? So those are some of the, the principles, right? And so in this impelling force, I believe that there is values that, again, I, I'm hesitant to name, you know, that, but I do feel that they are absolute, that these are values that are the impelling force that moves humanity and it, you know, it, it, I don't want to name them because I don't want to limit them because it's kind of like this, again, this comes out of truth that there is something that impels humanity that it, in fact impels the universe itself on every level. It may be the driving force that grows plants and, and creates animals and makes stars and planets. There's it's everything is moving towards this complexity. And maybe this complexity is a process of knowing the self. 
And the reason I say this relates to all religions, and I can actually rectify with all religions, is like when I take the worldviews of the various, let's say, the major world religions, um, like Judeo-Christianity, where you have, even though it's a mechanistic, really, it's a mechanistic, materialistic worldview, it's why our sciences have become embedded in that worldview, that the world is stuff, it had a maker, the maker built the world out of stuff, that's why his son was a carpenter, Right. So you have this 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 worldview that the world is stuff and that it is made of stuff and that there was a maker of the stuff. Okay, that kind of put it all together. Now, the way I can rectify that is. The why. Right. And the concept within Judeo-Christian traditions that he created man in his own image to know self. Is it possible that God is a process, that the universe itself is a process, and that mankind is becoming as God is becoming? In order for the infinite, because we always attribute these infinite qualities to the Godhead, the source, whatever you want to call it, of omnipotence, of omnipresence, right? And this this infinite nature in order to know itself must have a finite reflection and possibly is it possible that mankind is a finite reflection of this infinite nature, this impelling force. So possibly the God and the and humanity are becoming together. They are a process that emerges together simultaneously. And, and it's a process of knowing. It's a process of knowing eventually self. And the, and the reason I'm using these the terms the way I'm using, because this isn't the wording you would necessarily get in the Bible, but by using the words in that way, I don't believe it contradicts the Bible, but, I, but by using those terms that I'm using, it perfectly rectifies with some of the other world religions. So if we take like the Hindu worldview, which is that the entire universe is just a dream and that the only being is the Brahman. And the Brahman goes to sleep to forget that it is one, that it is the all. And in this dream, separates itself out into all things, all planets, all plants, all animals, all humans. And it's seeking to know itself at a deeper level through this dream of forgetting that it was the one, that it is all there is, that it is the omnipotent, the omnipresent, right? The omniscient, it forgets all that. And then if you look at even the the ancient Chinese worldview, which is this organic model of the universe, the universe itself is an organism. And like any organism, it, uh, it, it, uh, it emerges from within itself, right? It is, it is this constantly emerging from within itself and growing and breathing and it, the entire thing every planet, every molecule, every atom, every human being are all part of this single organism that is expanding and growing and evolving. And so I can, for me, in using this, that language, I can, I can rectify all our worldviews. And that's why I say that the ancient Chinese model isn't right or wrong. It's just, it was a method used by humanity to get us closer to the truth right? In a, in a poetic sense, the finger pointing at the moon. Same with the Judeo-Christian traditions. It was humanity's attempt to get us closer to the truth. And same with the Hindu traditions. It was humanity's attempt to get us closer to the truth.
And you actually find a lot of similarities when you start to see the deeper messages. You know, again, rather than focusing on the moon or the finger, take it in, the finger pointing at the moon and, and, and see it at the metaphor and the poetry of these, of these stories, of these traditions, of these philosophies. Somebody have something? I have a question. Go ahead. So I, I kind of attack these subjects kind of Socratically, you know, and uh, if one thing must be true, then the other must be true. Uh, or the inverse of that, if one thing's not true, then the other must not be true. I can't speak for everyone, but in my own experience, in my own analysis, and, and uh, when I look at the world, I don't see a move towards complexity. I see a move towards uh, a degeneration. Um, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the laws of, of physics, you know, Newton's, you brought up Newton with his theory of gravity. It's still actually a theory, um, not yet proven. And uh, I see that uh, things are becoming, like I see humanity moving more toward uh, a, a, not moving towards the truth, but moving towards deception and falling, falling in love with the lie rather than embracing the truth. And, um, but, but, and, but you're not really, you experience that or see that when you look at the world. Yeah. But you're not, you're not really speaking to the concept of complexity at all. You're speaking to truth, but you're really speaking to your perceptions. That's all you've given me is your perceptions of the world and what you consider to be truth, but it's really just your interpretation of it. So there is me, no more truth to, to your interpretation. Help me to objectively understand what you mean when you say that the universe is becoming more complex. Can you give me some more finite or, or something that I can relate to where I can actually see that? Uh, yeah. the, the universe the is always evolving. Yeah, the development of life, the development of consciousness, the fact that you know, we have these galaxies that <laughs> over eons transform. It's the um, Fibonacci the cycle. There you go. Well, well, that's that's again. I reject it. What happens that's, if I reject evolution? That's fine. You can reject whatever you want, but the world is getting more complex around you. Like whether or not you believe, I'm, this isn't. This has nothing to do with Darwinism. Like the fact is, humanity in our conceptions of ourselves, in our consciousness, even we expand. And even we get more complex. Our societies become more complex over time. So you can reject complexity. So, so you're but saying again, that... if, we take simple pro, pro, if we just take the, the records uh, as, we can, as we can get them from the development of the planet itself, we see this gradual complexification of the planet over time. Now, you can reject that, but there's evidence for that, and there's no evidence for your rejection of it. No, I mean evolution as a, as a I mean, as a, just as a theory itself, you know, that, 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 that I don't see the, the, the world evolving, I see it devolving. But again, that's based on your perception of the meanings of the word evolving and devolving. Well, let's look into it. What do you see that is devolving? Well, for example, 
um, socially, just looking at the social moral makeup of men and women in our country, I don't think that you can go back 150 years and if you could somehow travel there and speak with the people there and explain what's happening now socially with, with the degeneration of people, uh, people's minds to the point that they don't know that there's only two genders. I don't think that any time in history you could ever point to That's complexity. 72 it, genders is a lot more complex than two. You're, well, you're, yeah, if it were you're, real. You're, you're, you're if it were real, Brandon, but it's not real. Good. It's not, but it's complex. <laughs> it well, is hold on. Let's, of thinking. But, but let's continue just, down that thought process. So, Salo, you said that uh, things have been degenerating since however long ago. I don't remember the time frame that you used. But I would ask, are they evolving into something new or are they devolving into something we've already been before? Well, I don't, I don't think when I look it back at, you know, my, you know, and again, this is all perception based, right? I, I have no other way of interacting with the world, but through my perceptions and to, to take those perceptions and to draw inference from them, just like every other person on this call. Sure. So and there's no problem with that. What no, I'm getting at is the, the use of the word evolve or devolve. Because right. to me, Which the way I, that I see something evolving is something becoming something it's not been before. Evolutionary, even if it may be something that's worse, it can evolve into something that's worse than what it was before. But to evolve means to become something new, for me, anyway. So that's why I was asking you what, what you mean by you know, things in the world are devolving. Are you getting at that things are getting worse than they were before, or are they going back to the way things used to be? I think that they're getting worse than they've ever been, and I don't think there's any precedent for in 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 the last millennia for for uh, what's going on socially just just in this country and what we're exposed to. That's just what well, my take. And I think so. so I get what Salah Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You guys are going off track here. Hold on. <laughs> Complexity does not mean evolving or devolving. Okay, so let's make that distinction right now. Okay, now there is an aspect. Remember, we said that that impelling force, right, which moves, which we'll call love, which gives us those ways of engaging the people around us in what I'll call a quote unquote loving way and plays out in what we call gratitude and compassion and understanding and empathy, right? These are, this is the process of loving when we're in alignment with that impelling force. Now, love, remember I said, was the absence of fear. There is absolutely no fear when you're in unconditional absolute love. Now, is it possible to, to, that's the word I'm looking for, to corrupt that impelling force. And I would say yes, and it's through fear. Okay, so just as that impelling force that could move you towards love and loving and creating love in the world and is the, in fact, it is the impelling force of the universe. Let's presume that for a minute. Well, then if there is fear, what does that force become? What, if you corrupt that impelling force that would 
create more love because it is love. So we would create more experiences of love. If there is fear, which is we'll say is the opposite, right? Fear would be the opposite of love. So if I'm corrupting this impelling force through fear, what would I get then? Stagnation. Or devolving or war or right it's hatred a, anger blanks death if you're not moving yeah, but you're i don't not, see if you're not moving you're not growing you're dying i mean i think the kindness and gentleness and compassion and mercy and love all of which are verbs and can be seen in action the only way you can see them almost like the only if you're in a building and you look outside and you see the trees moving the only way that you would know that there's a wind out there is by seeing the tree moving. So I think it's like that with love. I mean, you have the subjective emotional or feeling that you might get when you consider the topic of love. But love is actually an action. It has to be manifest in order that's, for it to be experienced okay. so that, or, or observed. That's what I'm saying. I don't think that contradicts what I said. I, I'm not, that, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to be contradictory. I'm just trying to. Okay. I'm but do you, to, okay, I'm I'm trying to tie your your the world is going to sh hell in a handbasket conversation with fear, and that fear is what corrupts that impelling force of love. Can you relate your concept, your perception of what you see in the world and where you see the world going? Can you see? Does that relate that that fear corrupting of that impelling force of love? Does that does that match? Does that fit with that what you fit. perceive? Okay, that does so fit. that's all I wanted to get to. Okay, so again, I just wanted to make uh, get that relation in there so that again we can be on the same page with where we're going with laying out this foundation for truth, love, and faith. Okay, all right. Any other questions with regards to love at this point? No, so far it's pretty cool. Okay. So, and I'll reiterate, like there is, again, just like our conversation with regards to truth, where there is an absolute truth. Okay. I want, I also want to bring in the, the premise that there is, I want to call it an absolute value. Cause I don't even want to pluralize it. I, 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 it's as if this universal value the which is the impelling force of love we interpret and we embody it and we be it when we are acting in loving ways through these different concepts we have of loving action right like we talked about mercy and grace and gratitude and forgiveness so these are all manifestations but i see it as like as an absolute value that impels i feel it impels humanity more than any other being. However, I feel like I also see it like in dogs. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know, there's something about dogs um, that I can see like there is that like there, that there isn't that same impelling forces there that will have dogs act in compassionate ways that will and again this is my interpretation of the actions of a dog i can really only speak from the standpoint of a human but on my observation i feel like i've seen dogs act in ways that are in not necessarily in their own self-interest 
and are as if it's a manifestation of this compelling, this impelling force, this impelling uh, virtue that comes out in the ways that we love. Okay. All righty. Anything else on love before we get into faith? I feel like there's more to be said, but. You can talk a little bit into the, the complexity being a, a way to, for self to under, understand self or to know self or I don't know. Yeah, to, speaking to that a little yeah. bit. Okay. So I, again, remember, I, I was, let's go back to the beginning of that conversation. I said, I could describe my observation as, right, a moving towards complexity. But then I broke that down into knowing self, right? So because that's where I kind of see the pinnacle of this complexity, because I see the pinnacle of this complexity of human is, is human consciousness, right? And that like we've even, we even experience a, a, a group consciousness. You know, we can have experiences where we share conscious experiences and we have this capacity to objectify the entire universe and make, make up ideas and concepts. And we have this unique capacity that no other animal or, or being has in the world, which is this, this capacity for self-awareness, for self-consciousness. And so I equate that to the various religious and philosophical views of the, of the let's call the primal aspects of existence, which would be in religion, a God, which in philosophy, they may have some other impelling force, you know, in Star Wars, it is the force. <laughs> it's, it's the cosmic force versus the living force. So there is these, there are the, the in every tradition, in every language, there is a concept, there is a, an idea of, of what is there. And because I see that as human consciousness, as far as my observations, as far as I can tell from my observations is that it is one of the most, if not the most complex aspect of the universe. There is nothing else that I can observe within the universe that has that complexity, except what we would call the source, the God, the, the infant. He's back. All right. Um, okay. Uh, I totally don't remember what I was saying. I started cursing at my phone, disconnecting. <laughs> so we were talking. Well, last I last I re recall is we were talking about the the compelling. You had talked about dogs and the compelling force, and the um, gosh, what did you, I'm sorry. Yeah, the impelling force, <laughs> and you were. Uh, you said something right after that, and then that's where you dropped off. Well, I know, I know I was relating it basically to the concepts of world religion and how consciousness that this complexity that I that I call human consciousness that seems to be unique in in when we take into account beings on the earth, or you know, I'm sure there may be beings outside the earth, but you know, from our observations, beings on the earth, we, it's a unique feature that to me seems the closest thing to that infinite 
source, God, whatever you want to call it, whatever traditions or religions or philosophies, whatever name there is for that, which is, you know, the context for all, um, it, it seems that we're a reflection of that in a finite way. And so I see that as the, that that impelling force moves humanity to reflect the infinite. And again, I, I feel like I'm not, I don't feel like I'm speaking really outside of the traditions and philosophies of many of these religions of, of the God, the self in the God, the God in the self, right? Again, God creates man in his image, um, the kingdom of heaven within, all these concepts are, are for me, uh, are moving us towards the truth, which is that there is a becoming. Because I see the universe as a process. Um, I feel that when we, based on, remember, we, we said we can only ever get t close to the truth with the way that we grasp the world in that we use symbols, right? We use words, we use concepts, we use ideas, and we're, we're biting the world and we're creating symbols of it, but that's never quite there. So I see the universe like truth as a process. And I see being the, 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 our, our very existence, our very being is, is process. And so of course, what view I would have of God would also be process in that, and that these processes are uh, intrinsic to each other, that the becoming of God is the becoming of man, and that the becoming of man is part of the becoming of God, and the becoming of the infinite is the becoming of the finite, and that it's all this process, the, these processes within processes that make up the universe itself. Okay, now, so I don't want to go to Gnosticism. Am I? Uh, no, not necessarily. I, Where man I don't really is he eventually going to evolve into God? No, I'm just. I'm saying they become together. So I, I, again, I'm. I only have my philosophy here. I may take bits and pieces of different philosophies. I've never studied Gnosticism, so I don't know. But in reality, it's more of a, I'm, as not, above, I'm not so prescribing. I don't prescribe any ideology. Plain and simple. I'm. I'm here to think. And hopefully to inspire others to think. I'm not asserting that what I'm saying is truth. You know my take on truth. It can't possibly be the truth. But what I hope comes out of these kinds of conversations is thinking. That people will learn to critically think for themselves. That's why I do not prescribe to any philosophy. I t I'll grab bits and pieces that I find valuable here and there. But I, won't, I would never prescribe to any tradition philosophy ideology or religion but isn't that because relativism all, no they're all limiting that's it that's the nature of man all we can create is something out of symbols so they're all limiting so for me, I'm always seeking to synthesize from the best and what makes the most sense to me and what feels true, right? We were talking about that knowledge, that there's that intellectual, that symbolic knowledge, but there's also that, that feeling knowledge, that, that emotional knowledge. So I have no limitations when it comes to the philosophical basis. 
because I will look everywhere. I have no prejudices against any ideology. You won't find many philosophers who are willing to dive into every religion and pull what they see as valuable from all of them and, tr and then synthesize them into other philosophies. That's what I do. But you, you don't see that often. And again, because what I wish to inspire here is thinking, critical thinking. I'm not necessarily giving you my doctrine. I don't want apostles. I don't want you all going home and this is what Brandon says is the truth and we should all follow Brandon. No, that's not what I'm doing here. Okay? That's awesome. I'm not, I'm not looking for a ministry. I'm not looking for apostles. I'm, my goal is to inspire critical thinking. Think for yourself, synthesize for yourself, be let go of your prejudices, let go of your presuppositions and be willing to look anywhere and everywhere to find the truth, to get you closer to the truth. Cause that's all you have is to get closer to the truth. As soon as you prejudice yourself and say, this one philosophy right here is the truth and there is no other truth. All you've done is completely limited yourself. That's it. That's it's, all you've done. It's interesting, Brandon, because actually this is what I've, it's fascinating. Uh, just how often what we talk about aligns to so this is has been my experience i've been actually in the awareness of how the conversations have lifted around me how the younger generations are even aware of their consciousness when it took me years like, I don't know, they just kind of showed up that way and they're having really complicated or what I consider complex conversations in the ordinary course. And I, I, so I'm starting to see it. I'm also starting to experience my attraction to views that seem uncomfortable, but are more ethereal. And so it, it's interesting because I was taking a walk the other day thinking about this, how... Not that it was bad or good, just that it was. And if I, you know, one of the things that I took away from, from training was, you know, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And it really has served me well. Um, so what you're explaining is uh, uh, what you're inviting us to ponder and frankly, just opening our minds to different possibilities. Man, I really appreciate it because uh, this is what I've been experiencing. Yeah, not, and, and, not, and it's really important. Remember, one of the subtopics of this, of this discussion is the war on reality. And you are absolutely right that you must actually face all these ideologies that you are uncomfortable with, that you are angry at even, right? Like if you don't understand critical theories, you can't, you can't free yourself of its nonsense. You can't free yourself of, its, of the obfuscation. You're, you're worried about those that are trying to deceive you, well, these, if you don't understand these philosophies, then you will be deceived. If you don't understand the ideologies all around you that are being pushed, then you will be deceived. So you must be willing to look at all of these ideas, all of these philosophies, look them in the face, learn them inside and out. Because if you don't understand them, then you don't see the deception. You can't get past the obfuscation. You 
will get further from the truth. And that's why we have this experience. People are experiencing this worldwide. I don't know what is real. Why are they having that experience? Because they have, are being bombarded by ideologies, by philosophies that they have no understanding of, that they aren't willing to look at or don't know to look at. And it's just deceiving, deceiving, obfuscating, obfuscating to the point where you don't know what's real. And so I feel that these, these principles, these distinctions of truth, love, and faith are extraordinarily important and significant for getting yourself to a place where you can see and move towards truth. You may not be able to grasp it with your thoughts or grasp it with your words, but you can experience it. That is possible. There is absolute truth and there is an absolute objective reality. It's just, it's not through your words and your thoughts that you're going to get there. You can get close. So that's our goal in these processes and understanding these distinctions is being able to get ourselves closer to the truth and and in turn, get rid of the bullshit, like see through it. And you can't see through it if you don't know it, if you don't hey, understand Brandon, it. <clears throat> yeah. I have another question for you. Just in your own experience, um, when you feel that you're moving toward truth or on, you know, you're on a path to truth, do you feel like there's a dissonance that works against you, kind of like you're swimming upstream? Or do you feel that it's easy? Um, I, I'd say when you, the experience of moving towards truth is easy. The dissonance comes when you get these contradictory philosophies and ideologies. That's where dissonance happens because it challenges reality, right? Not to say that your reality shouldn't be challenged. It should like that, that dissonance, that cognitive dissonance that people experience, which we we also leads to anxiety and depression and anger and hatred and frustration. All that comes because, and this is what, what our world is going through right now in this war on reality is this onslaught of these ideologies that are challenging reality, right? That are, that are making a mockery <laughs> of reality, right? Um, making a, uh, almost a parody of it. And, the, the way that I cope with that experience is by looking, it in, looking at it directly, looking it in the face, understanding it. Like you all have heard the term critical race theory. You all have heard the terms of uh, intersectionality. You've all heard the terms, or maybe not all of you, but you, you're, you're may, many of you are maybe, maybe familiar with the philosophy of postmodernism or neo-Marxism, but do you know it? Have you researched it? Have you studied it? Do you know the mindset that drives it? Do you know what they take for truth? Because when you understand the way, the, the way their thinking works, the way their philosophy operates, the dissonance goes away. There is no more anxiety. There is no more frustration because you're like, oh, shit, I get it. I get where they're coming from. I don't agree with it, 
they're fucking idiots, <laughs> whatever your assessment of their philosophy may be, but you got to see the philosophy for what it is. Because if Thank all you. you do is point to their actions and say, these are stupid actions, but you don't understand the thought process behind it, it just becomes frustrating. It's just frustration after frustration after frustration because you're like, what is wrong with these people? There are not 72 genders, right? You just get frustrated by their insistence upon their, their truth, right? Their, 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 their version of reality, right? But when you see, when you know it, when you see it for what it is, the dissonance is alleviated. The, the anxiety can go away, you know, and you can see it for what it is. And then you can move towards the truth again. But it's definitely an obstacle you must face. You must be willing to face. So always be willing to face that which challenges your reality. It's very helpful. Thank you, Brandon. No, you're welcome. And I I think, Brandon, too, this conversation is one thing. I mean, it's not the most comfortable, right? But it is, uh, I'm using my senses. I'm sensing there's no harm in considering it. Right. No. And again, it's, yeah. And, and again, I don't want any of you to take this as gospel. <laughs> you know, like, like I said, I'm not looking for apostles. I'm not looking for, for, to, to create a church or a ministry. What I want is for y'all to walk away thinking. If you could think up an, a philosophy for yourself and your life, if you're willing to, to really dive deep into your own consciousness and seek truth. I think we'll all be better off. I think that's what the world is lacking. I think the further we get from reality and the further we get from truth, the worse it is for our culture and for us as individuals, our society. So last points I want to make on love is the unique the, the unique features of humanity that arise from this impulsion of, of love. And I look at like, you know, most animals, and, and again, this is to, to distinguish humans from animals. There is distinction there, even though, again, there are philosophies flying around right now where there is no difference. You know, dogs are the same as people and men are the same as women. There is no difference, right? Um, There is something that you, in all animals, they have these genetic impulses, I'll call them. I still believe that they have a psyche. So there is this spiritual element to animals as well. And that we could see is maybe where their instinct comes from, right? Because I, again, uh, I don't want to get too deep into the philosophy, but uh, we'll just, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) So there is this will say a psyche to the animal, which is, is behind its instincts. And human beings also have instincts, right? Instincts are what have us seek nourishment, what have us seek to reproduce, right? However, what's unique about mankind is our capacity to redirect that energy, to even, to even uh, uh, impede it, right? We have the capacity to not act on impulse or instinct. This is, this is unique to humankind. And again, that, I believe it's because we, are, we, we allow or have access to that impulsive force that I'm calling love. 
that there is the instinctual is more about self-preservation. Okay. It's like the, the need to eat, but a father will, or a mother will not eat in order to make sure their children eat. That is, that is, that goes against instinct. Okay. Cause instinct would have you in a state of self-preservation. Like a deer, if, if, a, if a group of deer gets surprised by a mountain lion and the mountain lion starts chasing, they all run. The mountain lion gets its hands on one of the children. Guess what? No one stops. Right? It's going to tear apart that baby deer. It's going to eat it. And none of the deer will <laughs> twice about it. So there's something very different about humanity in that impulsive force that would have us do for other before self. That loving action that we have it with to actually go against our instincts. And so for me, this is just, I wanted to add that piece on because for me, that is, that is more observable evidence of the nature of this impulsive force, this this absolute virtue, this absolute value, whatever we want to call it. Um, for now, I'll call it love. <laughs> it has, we'll say the value itself is the passive aspect and the loving, the action that, that, that it manifests as through us is the active form of love. It makes sense. But it seems like it always has to be outside of self, right? There has to be a death of self in order to uh, manifest that love. You can't work, you know, you can't act on your own self-interest and call it not, love. Not necessarily. And, and, I, and the reason I say that is because there not only is recognition of the value in giving of self to other, but there is also the value in, in valuing the self and loving the self. Like, Again, something that, that distinguishes man from all other animals. Man is the only being that can commit suicide. Now, a lemur, uh, is it lemurs? What are, the, what are the animals that jump off cliffs? They don't do this intentionally, right? They, it, it's not like, ah, I've got nothing to live for, and an animal jumps off a cliff. That doesn't happen. It was, it was, it was, it was lemmings and lemmings. Uh, well, lemmings. The Walt, the Walt Disney producers chased them off a cliff. Just right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but lemmings will not willingly commit suicide, but man has that capacity. So I would say it's actually that loving, that impulsion that moves us in that space without fear would have us never commit suicide. We have the capacity to do it, but it's when fear comes in and starts to distort and corrupt that impulsive force that makes it possible for us to commit suicide. So there's a tremendous amount of fear in suicide, even though it seems like it would be a courageous act, like it would take a lot of guts, but there's, there's something that's separating you from that impulsive, that, that universal virtue, that, that absolute virtue that we're calling love. There's something corrupting that. It may not look like fear in the moment that you decide to commit suicide. It may look like hatred. It may look like humiliation. It may look like something else, but it is a distortion. I can call all of, just like I've, 
broken love into many different principles, we can break fear into just as many principles. And we can call them anger, and we can call them hatred, and we call it frustration, we can call it humiliation, right? And so it, it's some form of fear that has corrupted that impelling force of love to have you actually commit suicide. So I would say it's, it's not only love if it's outside of yourself, but it actually, it, you, there must be a love for self as well and towards self. Because if you start to have fear about self and you start to direct anger, hatred, frustration, humiliation at self, you've corrupted that loving energy that wants to move through you. And by corrupting it, you're corrupting the self. All right, that was a good question. I'm glad I got to touch on that aspect. All righty, anything else around this before we move to faith? Uh, so what's your, what's your definition of love then? It's that, imp that impulsion of moving towards those those things that have us do for other, those things that have us care for other, um, all those things that we would label when we're completely free of fear, those things that we express that we, uh, there, there are some labels I've given it here, but I believe there are many more labels that would fit into that. That's why I don't want to give it like love, like truth is something we can get close to understanding through our use of symbols, but it, there is no adequate use of symbols here. There are no words that I can string together that will be, that is what love is. So again, it's the finger pointing at the moon here, right? I'm, I'm in metaphor, in analogy, in poetry. I'm trying to give you the best holistic view of love that I can. So it's that, that, that driving impulsive force behind the entire universe itself that when there is no fear manifests through us as mercy, as grace, as compassion, as empathy, as courage, even, right? Um, all of the, and, there, and like I said, there are many more that, that we can, that we can, that are a reflection of that as that force that moves through us. And we know it is something more than what we are in that it expresses outside of what our own self-interests are. And that when fear is present, it corrupts that. And so the more fear that is present, the more people will act in their own self-interest. And again, this goes right back to what we're experiencing in the world right now with the extraordinarily high amount of narcissism, you know, like, yeah, we could point the finger and say, you know, well, it's because of Facebook. It's because of Twitter that people have wrapped up their, their image of themselves in these digital profiles. And they believe that that's who they are. This mythos, this image of themselves that has created a high level of narcissism, but that high level of narcissism is fear. It's created out of fear, a fear of the authentic self and how people will react to the authentic self. So I create an image of self. So that fear that has us uh, not only curate, but 
attached to an image of ourselves and then be so caught up in that image that and so self-absorbed is that's the disconnection from love, right? Because that's what drives that narcissism, what drives that, that, that self-importance is fear. It is, it is a corruption. It, it, uh, it, it blocks, it, it restricts that, that impulse, that, that impulse of God, that impulse of, of the, of, of, of life itself that moves us towards those, those selfless acts towards those, what we could label loving acts that that is love is that energy that that virtue right i want to i, I want to call it a value i want to call it a virtue but i don't want to label it because labeling it will limit it but i will label all the ways that we're aware of how it expresses did does that get close <laughs> for you good one good one i i'm I guess I'm thinking about how it fits in in the metaphysical sort of context. Where where is love in reality? It's everywhere. It's it's in everything we do. When we act without fear, it's love, right? When we when we speak without fear, it's love. It's as soon as there's any kind of fear involved, it's distorting, it's contorting, it's restricting, it's twisting, right? It's corrupting love. Yeah. It's interesting that love requires time and it also requires more than the self. Right. It, it's yeah. an outward expression that manifests within as a result of, you know, like you're, like you're been describing an almost counterintuitive, uh, uniquely human, um, aspect uh, of, right. And, and maybe a little bit with dogs. <laughs> yeah. 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 But we need a past and a present and a future for love and uh, for yes for for us to have a conversation about it for sure and for us to have an experience of it actually i wouldn't say that a past a present and a future experientially if we want to get into the metaphysical of it because if there's a metaphysical existence and experience beyond time and space like let's say there's an, an experience of life without a body where right you exist within a cycle as opposed to linear time there, I believe that that love is still what drives and moves you, even outside of the physical experience of life. Outside of, if you were purely a metaphysical experience, that you that that would still be the drive, mm -hmm. the impulse, the impulsive force that moves you, and that you act, and that you still manifest. You still you still express it, even in a purely metaphysical existence. Nice. But yes, it's definitely a lot easier for us to understand <laughs> in this experience when we put past, present, future with it. Cause it's how we, I mean, it's, it's our experience here. 
that it's a linear timeline kind of experience. So in order to understand things, we kind of like fit them into that. In fact, as soon as we start timing about talking about that timeless place and experience, you lose a lot of people, (laughs) especially if they haven't had an experience like that, you know, because many people have had a timeless experience. So they can somewhat relate, but it, again, it's one of those things that as soon as you start to try to use symbols to explain it, it loses everything. You're just like, ah, screw it. There ain't, yeah. there ain't the words to express <laughs> what that experience is like. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I think we've all been, go, we've all been... go ahead, Shinji. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> well, I was going to say that... Uh... The only place that I've actually seen love defined was in sympathetic vibratory physics. All the other places, it was you know diluted down to some misconception of you know, like I can't live without you. That's love. Well, that's attachment. It's not love. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of that going around. And in my studies of it, trying to figure out what it was. Um, the I learned basically I learned everything that I could about what it wasn't trying to extrapolate what was left, but uh, vibrational physics they they describe it as um, obviously in in vibrational and musical terminology as like the tonal center of of all of existence, and that tonal center is what binds things together. It is what, um, in, in vibrational physics, they term sympathy, which means like the um, there's entropy and there's centropy. And that's the entropy is the pulling apart of things and centropy is the pulling together of things. It's that force within, um, within reality that's, that's constantly at work. It's the pulling together. It's the construction. It's uh, the attractive feminine energy dynamic, um, and it's 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 an actual frequency that they were able to mathematically put together, and resonates with all other frequencies on this plane. Like on a on a piano tuned to four forty, if you play a C note, you're not getting the reason why the piano has such a unique sound to it, and it doesn't sound like say a trumpet is because of the resonance that happens across every tone and key and string that thing is built in is, and also with its structure and, and uh, acoustic dynamics that are built into it. And when you play a C note, no matter which one it is on the, on the piano, <clears throat> what happens is all the other notes in the C major and A minor scales, chromatically and uh, non-chromatically, they all sound to different volumes or decibels at the same time because each and every one of those tones resonates with the tonal center, which is either C major or A minor. They're the same scale depending on where you start. And that's their basic definition is if you took every single oh, pitch that's, in the U.S. That's the basic definition? Oh, okay. Good thing well, we're doing the complex one. I'm doing full circle here. So the basic definition is all the notes that are possibly, all the things that are being sound in this reality all resonate with this one pitch, which is where everything originated. That's what they're defining as love. Right. And I feel like that there's definitely some essence and substance missing from that. For one, it's, I feel, over-objectifying and intellectualizing the concept. 
However, if I, let's, okay, let's accept that representation of love, uh, the discordance, the disharmony, the fear, it doesn't really adequately account for our manifestation of love. It's, it's like you've made it into uh, uh, purely objectified. It's just, it's just resonance. It's just these frequencies. Well, that doesn't say anything. The frequencies don't mean anything. Frequencies aren't grace. Frequencies aren't forgiveness. Frequencies aren't that experience we have of giving of ourselves for our children. So to me, it's just an over-intellectualization. I'm not saying that that impulsive force I've been talking about doesn't have some sort of resonance. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if that's the the only way we explain this, that you lose a lot. <laughs> actually, <laughs> like, though, yeah, a lot of the substance is missing. And when he explained that, actually, what I took away wasn't a wasn't the the symbols of the words. It was what he was explaining, which was there is a basic essence and force through which all things, like that, just runs through the center of all things. Like that. That's. And so I, to me, he was saying the same thing you were saying when, I don't know. Right. Or, except, yeah. if, except again, I feel like there's a lot uh, in, if we take just what he said, that the substance of our experience of love is missing. See, this is a, it's a very clinical approach to love is what I'm saying. It's not a very phenomenological approach to love. <laughs> you know, we're not you don't really it, it doesn't connect to an experience of love at all and i mean maybe if you're a musician you're like yeah man i get it but if you're not a musician you're like what the fuck is he talking about well um, that it, my, my experience of love won't necessarily equate to frequencies you know again not to say that there isn't that 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 isn't a na the nature that there isn't a resonant feature of that impulsive force in fact we we'd have to accept that in that the entire universe is a resonant is energy resonating between polarities like there is nothing in the universe you can point to that doesn't have resonance that isn't in some way polarizing energy uh, or the movement of energy between opposite poles like that's everything <laughs> everything oh, but to that has that aspect uh, to that point, when you're describing love, I'm at, when you're describing love, I'm actually totally aligned to what you're saying because I can't even express how close that is to my experience of love. Is it is a force? I mean, it is. It's it's like a force bigger than me that carries me in a way or that directs me most of the time. And so when he's speaking, and so maybe that's the lens through which I'm hearing what he's saying, you know. Yeah. Um, it, and like I said, that, that, and that's how I would listen it, but that's because I've already got my foundation in there. Without my foundation of love, it's just like you've stripped away what I consider the most essential substance of love itself. You've made it into frequencies. Like, okay, it may, that may be an aspect of it, but that doesn't tell you shit about it. It doesn't tell you yeah, about yeah. Brandon, to be uh, fair, it doesn't I don't think about the manifestation. To limit it to just <laughs> being frequency. It's just trying to use words to get you to understand a concept. It's not that the love is frequency. I don't think that's what anyone is saying. I think what they're trying to say is that 
that that uh, that description of other other instruments resonating the same tune show that that there's something greater. Maybe love isn't a thing, but it's a spirit. Right. And since we're, all reality. Beings, <laughs> since we're all spiritual beings, we, when we when we feel that spirit, we can all associate with it because we're primarily spiritual beings. This is funny. This is actually a phenomenon that, again, this is perfect for this war on reality. So we hear something. We experience something. Okay? Like, for instance, you hear people talk about they want equality, right? Right before they're going to push some critical race theory bullshit on you, right? They want equality. Everyone should be treated fairly, right? Don't you agree? Well, yeah, everyone should be treated fairly. And then they give you this half-baked idea. Well, we need to do this and we need to do that. We need to do this. Okay. And you fill in the – see, your, your tendency as a human being – is to give it a positive spin, to make it into something good because they started off by saying, well, you, you're about equality, right? You want equality. You want people to be treated fairly. You're like, yeah, yeah. So you assume that what comes after that must be good. <laughs> it must be for the purposes of equality and making sure people are treated fairly. So you will actually fill in their bullshit theory with your positive spin, and again, I'm not saying what Gingy said is a bullshit theory. I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying is this is what we do. You, you were feel, filling in sympathetic, because it's not even Gingy's theory. He was expressing to us the sympathetic vibratory physics, but you were filling in the blanks. You were bringing interpretation and filling in the sympathetic vibratory physics again. And this is, and, and that's not always bad, to, to, to fill in the blanks for yourself around somebody's, you know, incomplete concept or philosophy. But this is why people are buying into the critical theories. This is why people are buying into the, the gender identity bullshit. They're buying into it because they want to project their best spin on, well, these people want equality. These people want to be treated fairly. So they're filling in the blanks. Like the, the critical theorists don't actually come out and explain their theory point by point because then you'd all go, yeah, right. That sounds like a bunch of bullshit. No, they give you these vague talking points and then you fill in the blanks. You make no, this, it into something equal. You make it into something fair. This is, um, this is a whole strategy. I mean, this strategy runs through a lot of communication channels, NLP, legalese, yeah. the courtroom itself, right? Like, like this is an approach and it is, it's a uh, predatory in a way. Yeah. Well, it's again, because we, when you understand human nature, if you're a person that has no qualms with, uh, being unethical, unmoral, and you have no values or principles, well, then you will use your knowledge of human nature to manipulate people. And that's what's being done. Right. People so I've, I've found actually when you're, you, I think I learned this again with, with y'all. I, I think I picked this up like probably telepathically <laughs> or, or just proximity wise. 
to to just take everything like at its face and question it, not with preemptive information, but just say, okay, what did you say? Okay, and then just build the basics of, uh, uh, and then kind of force them into like, what is the construct in, in the framework in which you're asking me this question? Um, right, and rather the, than zooming and filling it in for them. Right, and I, I do take the bait every now and then, but I usually catch myself now. I just learned the craft of just not blending the question, one question with the other question. Yeah. So that, that's, that's, you know, we will, <laughs> we've been using the terms linguistic fuckery and linguistic power, but it's basically, it's rhetoric. It's the skillful use of language. Uh, when you understand it for yourself and you can understand how other people use it, uh, you can understand how other people use it against you. Um, and again, using even human nature itself. Uh, as uh, to manipulate as opposed to um, enlighten. You know, they're not really, these philosophies that are being pushed, they're not trying to enlighten anyone. They're not really, they're not really moving towards uh, equality or, or uh, fairness or any of that. That's yeah. the, yeah. what, what's that? Instead of that's what a lot of people think they're doing. Right. And, and, um, and like I said, that's the trap they fall into is they, they have these slogans, they have these talking points, and they put out these slogans and talking points that sound good, but like I said, they're not explaining the philosophy. And people will give it the best spin. They'll fill in the blanks. They're like, okay, well, these people are about fairness and they're about equality and blah, 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 blah. And so we project into <laughs> their philosophy, into their, into their slogans, right? We take their slogans and we, and we make them work with our worldview, we make them work with like, okay, well, they're about fairness. So I guess in this context, this makes sense. And well, they didn't say anything about this, but I assume they mean this. Uh, you know what I mean? Like you will start to construct the best possible spin of this, especially if you're a person of who has values <laughs> and principles, because you'll assume that their slogans and their talking points are honest. You'll assume that they are uh, that they are um, sincere about what they say they're about, right? So it's it, it, by having values, by having morals, by having ethics, it is human nature to kind of fill in the blanks using our own values. So if I know you have values and I have none, I will string together a series of talking points that will be amorphous enough for you to fill in the pieces with your value-based presumptions to make my shit sound good. Because my shit doesn't necessarily sound good when, when, if you boil it down to just my talking points and just my slogans, it's like, okay, there's a lot missing here. But human nature, you, and based on your values, will fill in the blanks. And so you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, I guess that's good. <laughs> you know? so, so again, it's not like we have half the planet has, well, I, I, I'm not going to make the presumption that half the planet hasn't lost its mind. Maybe it has. Um, however, there's not malintent behind all the people who have bought into this shit. You know, they have bought in because they have filled in the blanks of these empty, meaningless slogans and talking points. 
That's a really good point, right? That's a really good point because you don't want to miss direct <laughs> or, or label or, you know, I, first of all, I don't, I don't take a lot of hard and fast positions on, on things. So I'm not as torn by what's happening in society as it, it appears most people are. Um, but I could see how, you know, they've recruited people that believe they're acting in good faith according to their own values and, and being a stand for their values when, in fact, they're part of a larger concert of behavior that's not of good, yeah, not of malintent. So what does that mean then practically? Like, what do we do with that practically? So use your brain. <laughs> well, yeah, I earlier, yeah, I mentioned earlier being willing to face these things. Um, and being, because let's say, because a lot of people have already bought in. So what would the solution be for them? Well, when you come across someone who's like, man, that's all bullshit. They're trying to destroy our culture that, you know, Rather than, because that will create dissonance, right? There will be cognitive dissonance. You will experience anxiety, depression. Your natural tendency will be to attack this person. You know, if you can't attack their ideas, if you can't logically argue their ideas, which you most likely can't because you have no solid foundation of a philosophy to argue, you will attack the person. You will call them a bigot. You will call them a racist. You will call them all kinds of names because that's what you've been programmed to do because you bought into the philosophy which automatically grants you some kind of false virtue and which grants anyone who opposes your opinion these stigmas, right? Oh, well, they're racist. They're bigots. They're, you know, whatever. Um, so, you, so you will fall back on that. Well, that's not the solution. <laughs> the solution is to be with that dissonance to recognize the anxiety and depression and to face those opposing beliefs, those opposing ideas, just like we must do that. We must face the critical theories. We must face the gender theories. We must face postmodernism. We must face neo-Marxism. We must face these things and understand them because then it diffuses them. They have no more power. We get it. We understand it at a fundamental level, and we can easily dissect it and pull it apart and find its flaws. We know its flaws, not just how the how it's how these flawed philosophies manifest. Because if all we can do is point to the manifestations and say that's wrong, there's no solution there. You're pointing at the effect. You haven't got at the cause. Treating the effect is not the way to go in in any scenario, right? And whether we're talking about disease. Whether we're talking about a physical disease or a mental disease, because that's really what we're seeing here. This is a mental disease. So you must go for the cause. You must understand what, what's at the cause in order to truly treat and cure the disease. Now, are we talking about within self? Or are we talking, like, for example, I have a, I have a number of people that are pretty... Uh, that I know that I'm aware of that are constantly trying to recruit me into this or that, right? Uh -huh. And they have this. <laughs> they, they have this, uh, what did you call it? Um, Dissonance? Like the, uh, no, I wrote it down because it was awesome. Of course I write <laughs> a lot of shit down. Uh, I don't know, I can't find it fast enough, but it's like a false set of values, like uh, great, oh, false some virtues. False, yeah. false virtues. False yeah. virtues. Yeah. Uh, yeah, false virtue. Um, 
and they have that and then they start they'll call you know I, I have one neighbor in particular let me just tell you he's 80 something years old love the man absolutely love and adore him he is feisty as OB and he's constantly trying to recruit me into some political something and when you know when I don't When I don't drink okay. the Kool-Aid. I can't where you're going. You I'm going to cut I mean? you off. Yeah. I'm going to cut yeah. you off. Um, so love. That's, that's the, that's the uh, portion of the, of the discussion we're at now, right? So in love, in coming from a place of love, what, what, was, what was it I told you my goal on these calls, in these discussions was? I think it was to build disciples in a church. No, I'm just kidding. It was actually to get us to critically think, right? Just to... Right. Okay. Now, that's it. That's all I wanted. Critically think, right? So to get others to critically think for themselves. For one, you can't be there to make them wrong about anything. You must be a place of acceptance, love, and compassion for these people and ask them questions. Not from a place of I'm playing a role and I'm trying to get something, right? Because if, you, if, if your intent is to get for yourself, what is that love? Is that coming from love? So I totally get this. I, I agree. Answer the this question. Is the <laughs> Answer the question. I still got more to say. No. Is that coming from love? Okay, no. no. All right. So in that, in that space, if we're... Being loving, meaning we're truly there from a place of giving of self for other, right? That, and if we ask questions, even if it's questioning their positions on things like, oh, well, tell me more about that. Oh, well, explain this to me. Well, like you're now moving them into a space of thinking about their positions. And eventually there may be a place where you have a question that kind of turns their belief on its head, right? Or, or, or shows a fallacy in their belief, you know? And then you would ask, well, doesn't that contradict what you just said? You know, like, again, you're coming from a place of genuinely wanting to give of self to other, and you're in a place of questioning that causes thinking. You don't want them to regurgitate their slogans to you, okay? Because that's not thinking. If all they're doing is, is like, let's say you ask them a question and all they do is regurgitate a slogan. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? You know, what is, you know, when you say this, what does that word mean? You know, well, how, do, how would you apply that in this situation? You see what I'm saying? Like, you, you don't let it stand at slogans in talking points, or sound bites, right? I totally so it's, agree. <laughs> it's about taking them on a journey of exploration of their own beliefs, of their own positions. From a place of love. From a place of love. Mm-hmm. Totally down with that. But that's what I naturally do, and it, that's awesome. All righty. So, any, anything else? We're about to move into faith. <laughs> Got to have faith, faith, faith. <laughs> Nothing? All righty, here we go. I'm laughing. Okay. It's just on mute, okay? Salo uh, <laughs> had to leave, but he, he wanted to send his love and his gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> 
so fucking funny. <laughs> All righty, here we go. As you were. As you were, as you were. All righty. So, faith. So, again, we're laying out a foundation. This is philosophical. This is where I've come to in a philosophy of faith. So, in simple terms, faith is an unyielding trust in what we called in the previous part of the discussion, love. Okay, it's that impulsive force that moves us. And when manifests through us without fear, many times manifests as acting for others from self, right? In, in the, for the benefit of others in spite of the be, there being no benefit for self and in other ways that we've discussed. So there's that impulse, that, that, that impelling force, that, in, that impelling virtue that manifests through us. We call it love. And faith is a trust in that. It's an unyielding trust in that. And the meaning and purpose that that gives you, you know, when you, when you start to become familiar with truth, when you start to practice experiencing truth and you start to move towards truth and you start to experience love and manifest love through you, the, tr the unyielding trust you have for those impulses, for those virtues, regardless, meaning there is no authority for your trust. There is no, because so-and-so said so, I trust this. So there is no authority that compels your trust outside of yourself. There is no promise that compels your trust of this impulsive force that moves through you. What do I mean by that? It means it's not because God says so. It's not because the Bible says so. It's not because Lao Tzu wrote it here. It's not because the Buddha says this. It's not because of any of that. It's not because of any authority outside of yourself. And it's not because of a promise that will come of an outcome that may arrive because of your trust in this impulse and this, this impelling force that moves you into these actions and that from which you derive purpose and meaning in your life, you have an unyielding trust of that purpose and meaning through that you, that you have gotten through a through connecting with truth and allowing this love to move through you without the promise of an outcome or without the authority of anything outside of yourself. So that is for me, faith. And I'm, it's funny because I feel like I'm trying to put this in simple terms and I feel like I'm complicating it. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's really quite simple. <laughs> I promise. I, I've had clearer thoughts on this before. Um, but Let's see if I, if I can explain it again. Maybe it'll come out more fluid. It'll come out simpler, come out sounding more simple. Um, so this un, there's an unyielding trust of that impelling force we called love and the, the, its manifestations, including meaning and purpose 
for your life. And this trust is not dependent upon any authority or any outcome, promised outcome. So for example, many times in religion, and I, and I, don't, I don't necessarily see religion defining it this way, but I see practitioners of religions defining faith this way. And they define it as belief without evidence. <laughs> That's belief. <laughs> okay, so if we're going to draw a distinction between belief and faith, belief with or without evidence is belief. So to you, to me, that's conflating faith. So for me, it's beyond belief without evidence. Um, however, it's, it's kind of along that vein in that it's trust in, in not only in that impelling force that moves you towards these loving, being loving, but it also, it defines it defines you from the, uh, uh, with a sense of meaning, with a sense of purpose, and you trust that meaning and purpose that come out of that, those experiences of truth you've had, that, that expression of love that you've had, and you, you define for yourself meaning and purpose from that space of loving and love and truth. And, but it's not because the promise of something, like in religion, um, for example, the, the, the belief without evidence is like, well, I'm a good person because if I'm a good person, I go to heaven. Okay. So that, or here, even better, I'll, I'll tie in both, uh, both the promise and the authority. I'm a good person because God says so, and I'll go to heaven. You know, I get, if I'm a good person, if I'm righteous, if I live a righteous life, I will be in it. I will live a life eternal in heaven uh, because God and his vicars, the Pope and such, say so. Okay, so there's an authority there. It's God or his vicars, and there is a promise there. Well, if I am a good person, well, then I get rewards. Okay, so to me, that's lack of faith. Again, this is my philosophy of faith. Um, I know that you can probably open up Webster's and say, well, that's not what it says in Webster's. I don't care what Webster says. <laughs> this, is, this is my philosophy of faith. And for me, because of my philosophy of faith, I see that the necessity of a, of a promised outcome is a lack of faith. If you're only doing something for fear of not getting the promise or for fear of a consequence, even worse, like, well, if I don't do that, I'm going to hell. Okay. <laughs> Again, that's lack of faith. Or, well, because this, you know, my God says so, but the Buddha says so, uh, whoever says so. Well, again, a lack of faith. If, it's, if, if you cannot derive trust, or if you can't have this trust purely on your experience of truth and expression of love, then is it faith or is it belief? And is your belief based in fear or promise? Because a belief that comes out of fear or promise, for me, is by definition a lack of faith, but that's based on my philosophy of faith in that moment. So this one, I feel like, again, I, I really don't know what many people's experience or definition of faith is like i said i've heard many people describe it 
as belief without evidence. But to me, that's so inadequate. What do you guys, what do you guys think about, about belief without evidence versus my, my philosophy or definition of it? Well, I like your philosophy because it, it does add a little bit more to it. But the, where my mind automatically goes when you, when you bring in the word trust is back to authentic trust, blind trust. And I wonder what you mean by trusting that. Is it taking action on that? Is it living in that truth, in that um, uh, love, in, that, in those spaces that we've talked about? Can you talk into the trust aspect a little bit? Well, I don't want to get too far into the distinctions of trust, like blind trust versus authentic trust. Um, Now, for you, you you have an understanding of those distinctions. I would say it's more like an authentic trust in that it it, there is a feedback. You you live your faith, okay? Your faith is lived in every moment, right? It's expressed through everything you do, through the thoughts that you think, through the actions that you take. So your faith is like like truth and love. It's always present. Okay, but it's faith is what gets you out of bed in the morning. Faith is what has you be passionate about what you do in your life. Faith move is 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 more of a mover than love itself. Love is more passive. Faith is where purpose and meaning come into the picture. And so it's a trust that the purpose and meaning that arise for you out of your connection to truth and your uh, expression of love, that there's meaning and purpose for you to, to have, to create in life. And so the trust of that, and, and again, the trust comes from like you putting it in, it's in your actions, right? You live your purpose. You li- that, you manifest that meaning for yourself. And if at any point it doesn't feel right, you know, what this meaning, this purpose you have for yourself and your life, if it, if it, all of a sudden there's a, there's some kind of issue of integrity, meaning shit's not lining up, right? The, my values are not lining up with my outcomes or they're not lining up with my actions or, you know, trying to live this purpose is create, you know, I'm, I'm doing things that are outside of, what I, what my values are, what my principles are. So it's, it's constantly pulling together all your values and your purpose and your actions and your thoughts and your words. And it's, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's gauging their integrity, right? Their alignment with each other. And so the, the, that, that manifestation of faith, that trust, you, you will need to make a adjust- you may need to make adjustments in order to re- retain or maintain that integrity of your values and your purpose and your, you know, your experience of truth. So it's kind of like trusting your own um, internal direction or source of information and your own internal knowing and That's which what I, me is part of like the the satori that we talked about the um and i'm losing all my words already um, I, the I, truth I, that we talked about 
and the love, the things that you are passionate about, the things that, um, you know, that you're really connected to. I can see how living in those spaces and choosing to trust and have faith in those spaces just doubles down on your own core internal foundation and, and can potentially produce the purpose and meaning in life and have you pursuing things in, in, in those realms. Right. And it, and it doesn't require any into any intellectualization, right? It right. doesn't, it, 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 it exists. To figure in, out. Right. Yeah. It's not like I have to reason it or rationalize it. Not that those, that those, um, that not that those don't play a factor in, you know, in coming in, in, designing your meaning or I don't know those words don't seem to go together very well but <laughs> if but more of explaining your, right, discovering your purpose exploring your purpose if, if in, in going yeah, yeah it, there's the trust exists beyond any intellectualization of your values and the alignment of your values with your purpose and the alignment of your values and your purpose with your actions and your thoughts and your words. Like it's, it's remember when we had, when we talked about truth, we talked about that emotional knowing, right? That's beyond intellectual knowing it's beyond the, the, the way we symbolize the world, right? Cause our intellectual knowing when we use words and other symbols to, to, make sense of reality to, to, to represent reality. That's getting us close to the truth, but it's not truth, but we can experience the truth of that emotional knowing. And so there's, there's very much that emotional knowing is present in this faith, right? It's like, it, it feels right, right? When, when your purpose and your values, your actions and your words, when they're lined up, it feels right. It feels good. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like the stars have aligned. Everything just yeah. kind of, it's, it's like when you're just having an awesome day, things are flowing. Right. Why, yeah. does, why does the skeptic reject that? Why does the skeptic reject what? Why, why does he reject the acceptance of moving on that, that feeling? Like, why would somebody second-guess that and do something counterintuitive? Right. Yeah. Because they intellectualize life. And, and I, would, I would blame it on – blame. Here I am. I'm going to take responsibility <laughs> and agency away from everybody. Um, it, it, here's where I would say one of the root causes of that hesitancy, that skepticism, that lack of faith, right, um, I would say is rooted – in remember at the beginning of our conversation on truth, we talked about the mechanistic material, me mechanistic materialism that is the driving worldview behind our current institutions of science, not the method of science, but the institutions of science. Well, this has become prevalent throughout a majority of people. They also have adopted this worldview of this mechanistic materialistic worldview where they're no more than a machine. And so everything, the only things they find value and merit in are the objective. What can I measure, right? Show me a this, show me a that, 
well, as soon as you could show me a God, as soon as you could show me a faith, you know, they, they make stupid, ridiculous statements like that because for them, you're, they're just a machine. And if they're just a machine, the world is just a machine, then all that they can value is the objective. And this right. is very much not an objective conversation. Faith is not an objective thing. Just like truth is not an objective thing. It's an absolute, but it cannot be objectified. You see, there's a difference there between the abs. That's why I don't call it objective truth. I call it absolute truth. Objective truth is when you try to make the truth into objects, which is what they want to do. They can only think in terms of objects. So if they can't objectify it, then it can't be true for them because for them, the world is a machine. They are a machine. And there is in, in the world of the machines, there is no metaphysical. There is nothing beyond the machine world. Uh, I would also say that there's a lot of, um, of reliance on logical left brain thinking and I know for me, what has gotten in the way of that in the past has been my inability to conceptualize and explain what I'm experiencing. So I'll have this deep intuitive knowing that, like, don't turn left on this street. And I'm just like, yeah, but look, everything looks fine. It looks clear. You know, I should turn left here. And then I turn left and get into a car accident. And it's like, I don't have the, the, the conceptualization skills to be able to know where those feelings are coming from or what they mean. So I, I more easily dismiss them instead of trusting them. But every time I've trusted that, that internal knowing or truth of within myself, it's always panned out in some way or another. And so it's not even that the, even those decisions, but even looking back at quote unquote mistakes that I've made, and seeing those things as like, uh, like trusting that that was meant to happen, trusting that that was a lesson or whatever the meaning or you know, what I want to create from it. Um, but in, even in that, there's, there's potential to trust. So for me, I'm very much in my head and I, I analyze stuff. And if I can't explain it, that, uh, that definitely gets in the way. And Brandon, I think it's interesting also that the first two topics – are somewhat outside they're like almost natural law if you will I, the, you know i'm a, i'm not going to be the wordsmith you guys are but it's beyond a, a, a self whereas when we're speaking into faith somehow it's about like the purposing sensing self it's it's a it brings it down to the individual operator it well it's it's definitely it, there's an aspect of, of manifestation through the individual, but because it's intertwined with truth and love, there, there is this aspect to it that is beyond self, right? True. Because you can't, you can't, like, we can't even, that's why I built this conversation or laid out this discussion to have it in the way that we had it was because I saw these as intrinsically connected to each other and that you can't talk about one without the other. So I, 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 I saw it as like the best way to have this discussion was to move through all three because to have what I consider an, a, a, a valuable conversation or discussion around the, this idea of faith is to, is to have that discussion around love and 
uh, truth as well. Now, hold, I want to get back to make sure that I properly understood Todd's inquiry to see if I did I address what well, you were saying. I'm trying to approach it from a skeptical point of view. A, a skeptic would would okay. be would misunder. You know, I don't know. How does a skeptic accept faith? Yeah, I don't know if they can. <laughs> you know, they, a skeptic opposes this idea, and I'm right. I'm just trying to come come at it from there. Yeah, look, like if you wanted to actually if your intent is to open a skeptic to the possibility of a conversation about faith, yeah. um, I would say that this would probably be the way to do it because a skeptic would immediately reject any aspect of a religious ideology, right? Right. Um, because they're a big, bad, you know, uh, smart person and they know that all those things are just, you know, children's stories and, you know, like they, they, they put their own process of thinking above others and they demean people who have any kind of a, a, a system of thinking that incorporates what they don't consider objective, right? The world of the metaphysical, that which is beyond understanding. They feel like if you can't break it down as a formula and measure it and show it and right. you know, a physical a microscope of something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Some kind of uh, metric, right? Then it, then there, then there's no reason to talk about it because it either a doesn't exist or B is meaningless, you know? So it's the, the, there's not much you could go there. I would say, but this approach that we've taken to faith, which again, came by way of a, of a discussion of truth and love as well. But this, this approach to faith is it can be rectified through religion. Like my, understanding and my comprehension of let's say judeo-christian traditions fits perfectly with my philosophy of faith but yep. it it would also fit perfectly with a hindu's belief systems <laughs> or a buddhist belief systems like i can make that work with any philosophy i can make it work with any traditions and it's so but there i would say there has to at least be the possibility or of an opening of existence beyond the physical. There has to at least be like, they at least have to be open to some form of metaphysical. You know what I mean? Like, and you could gauge that like, well, do you believe that, you know, people like, or even ask them, Hey, have you ever thought about someone? And then immediately you get a phone call from them. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. actually been measured in scientific experiments like uh, Rupert Sheldrake. And yeah. again, they won't accept it in the scientific world because it goes against their worldview. But he's actually taken the scientific method and showed, look, there's something to this. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. This is psychic power. Scienti like, again, we did the scientific method. This is beyond the, you know, the standard deviations of error or for randomness. Like This is conclusive by the scientific yeah. method that there is something beyond the physical at work here. You know, so... If they're open to that, you know, to there being something beyond physical that like, okay, yeah, maybe I can know who's calling me before they call, you know, um, or maybe their intention of calling me is somehow connected with me on some level. 
because that would have to be beyond the physical, right? Because it's not like they got a wire in your head that they just yanked on the wire and like, oh, so-and-so's about to call, right? So there, there has to be an in there. There has to be something that like they acknowledge that the universe isn't just purely their physical sensations and purely their, the physical evidence that they've been able to gather up until this point, that there is something beyond Right. How does a how does a skeptic experience love? <laughs> you know. Well, it, I would say it's funny because we. Uh, that's why I again I felt like it was so important to have the conversation around that word yeah. because for some people love may be codependency. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they yeah. their experience of love is codependency, meaning that somebody needs me. That's love, or I need someone. That's love. Or I have sex with someone. That's love. You know what I mean? Like, there, it's a very, uh, it's a very amorphous kind of concept, right? Or I miss you. That's love, right? Like, in right. fact, now that I think about it, most popular culture references to love are the opposite. They're almost all fear of some kind. <laughs> like, more I think about this, like it's either like some sense of selfishness, self-centeredness, narcissism, or yeah. it's some kind of fear. Like that's like now that it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's weird. That's weird. (laughs) And after reading Mastery of Love by Don Miguel Ruiz, they went through all of this stuff and I was like, like, oh man, most people, I mean, they love and they think I can't live without you. And, And every little saying that they said, all the pop references, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Love is not attachment. Yeah. Love is not ownership. Yeah. Love is not transactional. Yeah. Love is not. And, it got completely rid of every single concept of love I had ever had in my head. And I was left with like, well, then what is it? It's nothing that I've ever heard before. Then what's left? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So again, I don't, it's, it's funny because I, and and by skeptic, you know, I'm, I'm kind of putting my own meaning in that, that they're also, uh, 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 an objective type of person. They're a left brain type of person. They're a, a, uh, basically a mechanistic materialist, right? That's kind of where I'm putting the skeptic. Yeah, um, deconstructionist is what I think of. Yeah. Yeah. That too. And they're in, in, in that, and in that worldview, um, because there's there's so little value and merit given to the ideas like that we've discussed tonight that I, d- I don't know what what they would define as love or faith or anything if they would even give those like if they would even entertain defining those things anywhere beyond what Webster says. You Dude, know? you know what you know what comes up though? is that scene in that movie, I Origin, where there's this like spiritual girl in a relationship with this very scientific guy. And he's like, I don't believe that anything exists outside of what I can see and touch and hear and whatever. And she goes, okay, well, what is it that you're working on? He's like, well, I'm trying to identify and basically prove evolution and disprove God. And I found this worm. And if I can grow an eyeball on this worm, I can, you know, create the missing link in, in evolution or whatever. And she goes, okay, so you're telling me that this worm here has an eye, doesn't have an eyeball, so it can't perceive light at all. And it doesn't have any ears. It doesn't, doesn't have any, you know, 
of ability to hear anything and receive sound waves. So all it's got is taste and touch and whatever else. He goes, yeah. <laughs> okay, so it has no idea that there's human beings that are around it. It has no concept of light. That its entire environment that it's in has no idea of the grander scale of things. It's like, isn't it possible that with just a single extra organism, or not organism, but organ within the body, like an eyeball, it would be able to perceive all of us beings around it, the, the, you know, how big the room is and what light is and start to create these new ideas. He goes, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that would make perfect sense. She goes, well, isn't it possible that we're missing an organ that a lot doesn't allow us to perceive something that we have no word for yet, that that could potentially mean spiritual entities and X, Y, and Z. And for him, because she used his uh, ideology, opened up for him an entire world of possibility. It was like a revolutionary part of the movie where he was now like, well, shit, I guess spirits and things could exist if we just had an organ to sense them. Because it went right in with his whole theory of, right. of reality. Now, I don't know yeah. if that would work for you know someone who's, no, well, my theory that, of reality is, <laughs> no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. I would say that that's actually right in line with something we've started but have yet to finish, which is uh, effective communication. Um, because that in having uh, powerful conversations, meaningful conversations, you learn ways of speaking with people. And I, I touched on it a little bit earlier in this call, but you learn to speak with people in ways that rather than you trying to bring your to bring your belief to to, uh, to reject their belief to to have them accept your belief um, rather than that you put you take them on an, a journey you take them on an, an, a tour an exploration of their own beliefs to have them come to new conclusions about their beliefs about their worldview you know um, so there's, that's part of the, what I call effective communication tools, um, that, you know, we started a couple weeks ago and we talked about it again last week and we even touched on it a little bit this week, but it's, it's definitely a way of having powerful conversations that can actually build bridges that you can actually have a productive argument because <laughs> argument isn't a bad thing. Argument is an opportunity to bring conflicting ideas together and maybe synthesize better ideas, right? So there is, there are a lot of ways of communicating with people and what we're, what we've been calling the skeptic here. There is a way to communicate with them, to have them go on a journey or an exploration of their own beliefs that will have them come to conclusions, new conclusions, new ideas, um, that they hadn't had before new possibilities even right i've found that um even engaging somebody with the socratic method like that these days is a trigger is a trigger for <laughs> people that have emotional <laughs> responses i can't i've been have, trying to have a conversation almost five or six years now with people of opposing viewpoints, usually political, and um, with just questions is enough to trigger a shutdown, the insults start flying, 
Like I can't even <laughs> open the conversation being totally, you know, wrapped with relatives, you know, with friends that, you know, have an inability to like the, the question triggers an emotional response that doesn't even manifest into words like meaningful words. Right. You know? Right. Right. And it may be the, it could be the nature of the question or yeah. the nature of questioner <laughs> at that yeah, moment. Like, you know, like if you come from a place of like derision, like you're a fucking idiot, like, you know what I mean? Cause that's, I know that right. that's my tendency. Like when people are off the edge and they're just spitting out stupid shit, my tendency is to be in a mindset of you are a fucking idiot. And if I ask them a question, it's coming from a place of you're a fucking idiot. And so it's not really going to be received well. Right. You know, sarcastic. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, that's, and, and again, like I said, I, I do that. I've been there, but it's definitely, I do understand. And I am aware that if I really wanted to have an impactful conversation with someone and like, then I like, I would go to that place of love. That's where you have to be yeah. in order to have an impactful, and then maybe different questions would even come up because you, when you're coming from that place of love of giving of self for other, you're, you're going to ask questions differently. You're going to ask different questions and it's not going to feel like an attack on their beliefs. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And Identity. I that's, that's the that's biggest what, thing. Where I've really yeah. come to this group and um, just the, uh, all the philosophy, you know, the, the general study of an understand basic understanding of philosophy for me it, it, in an attempt to try to, to reach across because what the toolbox I have up to this point doesn't seem to be working. You know, doesn't seem to be achieving any of these meaningful conversations with opposing viewpoints that don't devolve into insults and animosity. Right. So you know, and and and, and I'm actually and I'm not gonna give away any details, but <laughs> Many years ago, you called me and we had a conversation and I was in San Francisco. My daughter was in the hospital and she was dying, but you were going through a difficult time as well. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Okay. And for me, that was a significant and an impactful conversation. And I know that for me, I was very intentional about where I was coming from for you. I was in a loving space for you to be with you in a way that would open your eyes so that you could see clearly so that you could feel the love, appreciation, the gratitude. And so that, that was where I was coming from. I don't know what your experience of the call was, but do you, do you, if you can, if you remember that conversation, then you may remember it didn't feel like just a normal conversation. Maybe. Right. I don't know. Yeah. No, there's a reason I, you know, that we were talking in the first place that I called. So, right. yeah. So it's, there's definitely, when you are willing to go to those places in a conversation with someone, it completely transforms the nature of the conversation. In fact, those conversations become like life-changing they become like meaningful you remember those kinds of conversations for a lifetime you know um so it, when you're willing to go there with family members and things like that you may you may create 
something like that, some kind of a life-changing conversation, you know, when you're willing to go to that place of love and compassion and understanding and things like that, because it's, it opens up all, all kinds of possibilities and you're going to speak different. Your energy is going to feel different and it's going right. to, it, it just completely changes the, the, the experience for both, for both of you. Um, but like I said, I know for certain you don't want to come from the place of you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> It, it doesn't work. Yeah, I did check that one off the list. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fucking idiot. Doesn't work. Okay. What's yeah, next? Tried that you're, one. Uh, <laughs> oh, you, you're just an idiot. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're a moron. You're a you're a mindless. You're obedient. <laughs> you're right. a myrmidon. <laughs> yeah. My experience of you is objectively <laughs> as a moron. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Oh, the doggy getting in the conversation. I told you guys last week or a couple weeks ago that I just woke up. So I've been in and remain in a state of quote unquote, if you will, festivity that I can't get out of. I don't want to get out of. And I had a person at my work come up the other day and was so upset and distraught about Bill Gates and Melinda getting a divorce. And I just don't even <laughs> have the energy to have a meaningful conversation. I just don't care. And that's where I'm at right now. And these conversations, they do help me, but I still can't shake the fact that I'm just so pissed all the time. Okay. I, I was I was going to ask you what the word was you said at the beginning because I didn't quite Pistivity. catch it. Pissivity? Pissivity? Yeah, it's oh, the word we created okay. in my family. Oh, I'm using okay. that. I'm using okay. That. I was I was gonna say. I, I, okay, that's probably why it didn't <laughs> it didn't connect with me. It's a word I've well, never heard before. Well, so, they, they got okay. they got divorced because he was both micro and soft. Okay. <laughs> now, not, okay. Now, now, the thing. So you're, you're, to to before we get into the after hours conversation here, <laughs> let's let's try to let's try to tie right. a bow. My in my faith. my purpose is I can't come from a place of love. How do I get there? Because I'm still stuck being pissed. Right. Well, your the what's the pissness come from? Just stupidity, like you said, anger. Well, I just want is is, I, is stupidity true? It's my true. That okay. This is like the third I call know. in a row. I know. Where I've said my truth is bullshit. There is my no my truth. There is your assessment. That is your assessment. I don't even know if it's a well grounded assessment, but that's all it is. It is not truth. It is an opinion. It is a judgment. It is by definition an assessment. Correct. Yes. Okay. So your assessment of their actions, of the topics of their conversations, whatever it is, is that is stupid. There is stupidity, right? So that's an assessment. That's a judgment that you have about that person. Are assessments true? No. No, absolutely not. They're not even facts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in reality, <laughs> calling someone stupid, you can't even you can't even prove that true or false. So that's not even an assertion. That can't even be established as a fact. Now you may be able to say, well, they have a less than 100 IQ, or they have double digit IQ, or they have you know whatever. You may be able to say something like that, and then then actually measure it, and then okay, that's a fact. <laughs> they actually do have less than 100 IQ. Um, 
but that doesn't, that's all it says that you can use that to ground their stupid, right? So you could say they have less than, well, we'll go less, we'll go a little lower, less than 80 IQ. And my assessment is these people are stupid. What they talk about is stupid. And I'm going to ground that with the assertion that their IQ is less than 80. And the, the topics of their discussions are news are, are limited to news headlines and the talking points put out by mass media about those news headlines. Okay. So now you've made some assertions that you can prove true or false. Right. And so you can get their IQ scores and you say, look, ah, see 79, that's an 80 that, that, but that, that's a fact, their actual IQ, but it doesn't make your assessment that they're stupid true. It just makes it grounded. So now you've grounded the assessment with that fact. Now, the next assertion you made was that the topics of their discussion are limited to news headlines and talking points from news media about those headlines, right? And so in their next discussion, you record it. And literally, the guy starts off by regurgitating a news headline. And then the person he's talking to responds with the talking points that CNN, Fox, MSNBC, uh, every other channel <laughs> put out the day before, right? It's a threat to our democracy, <laughs> right? <laughs> they, just, they just repeat the talking points. They repeat the sound bites. And then you're like, ah, boom, second assertion proven true. <laughs> okay, so now I've got two assertions that have been proven true. So they are facts now. However, it still doesn't make the assessment that they're stupid true. The assessment that they are stupid is always a judgment. It is always an opinion. Okay. Now, if I want to have a different kind of an experience around people, I can shift my assessments and judgments of them. If I go to a place of compassion, like these people don't know any better. They really believe this stuff that comes out of TV. They've been so indoctrinated by our educational systems that they suffer from this fear porn that is being pumped out 24 hours a day. Like now I can, I can start to relate to them in, a, in an authentically compassionate way. Like, fuck, like I would, life would suck to be in their shoes, to believe what they believe, to, to think what they think, to have your life limited to regurgitating sound bites and headlines, right? Like, like you can really start to feel and express compassion and love for these people. Like they're not bad people. And that's my assessment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But see, I know <laughs> whatever assessment I put out there, it's never true. So I can say, yes, they're God awful people. And that's going to make me experience them in a certain way. Or I could say, look, they're not bad people. They mean well. And they're hurting and they're suffering because they believe in the fear porn. You see? So it's, it's, I've, I have changed, shifted my assessments of them about the, I've shifted my assessments about their conversations. It has now shifted my experience of them because assessments are always just judgments or opinions. And I can ground them either way. 
like you heard me just ground their stupidity with their IQ and with their topics of discussion, but I can ground my assessment that they're not bad people as well. I'd be like, well, you know, look, she's a mom. She has three kids. She cares about her kids. She takes them to school every day. She attends their sporting events. She, you know, like I can ground my assessment that she's not a bad person or I could even say she's a good person, <laughs> right? And I can ground that assessment and I can ground like that the suffering that she goes through from the fear porn. Like I see when, when people walk in without a mask and she loses her shit, it's because she's really afraid. I'm grounding my assessment that she is indoctrinated, that she really believes this shit, that she is really in fear. So you can see that like both assessments, neither of them are true and we can ground both of them in facts. And they're really kind of the, saying the opposite things. One is saying she's just an idiot. She's stupid. And the other is saying she's a good person and she means well, and she's afraid and she's suffering. Right. You're right. And I can, and we can ground all those assessments. That's the, I mean, so it's not that there you have there. It's not that they're right assessments and wrong assessments. Assessments are never right or wrong because they're never true. They can never be proven true or false. And you can ground them with facts. You can ground them with assertions, but it is what drives your experience of them. Your assessments of others drive your experience of them. It's true. All right, I'm gonna try it next time. Brings <laughs> up Bill and Melinda Gates. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe they were upset about it. <laughs> oh my God! You have no idea. Like that's crazy to me. Like really, you you care? It was a guy too. It was a guy, <laughs> no less. I'm like really. Is he related? <laughs> is is he been cut out of the? Was he cut out of the will? <laughs> Maybe that's it. He was fear of who he have to be stuck with in a divorce. <laughs> All right, y'all. Y'all, you're welcome. Anything else on the conversation of faith? before we tie a bow on this and move into after hours, if you're up for it. All righty. I will take that as we are complete. Thank you everyone very much for being present on this call. It was extraordinarily powerful for me. I got a lot out of it. I hope to have more conversations like this in the near future. I get so much out of these discussions. I hope you did too. And I'll talk to you all again very soon. Have a good night. <laughs>